0: Hello and welcome to Fighting in the War Room's top 10 countdown episode for the year 2014. We've done a few of these under several different podcast names. We did one without a name. I believe this is our fifth annual show uh, with the four of us. That is terrifying.
3: It's yeah. as terrifying as watching Eller Coltrane grow old in boyhood. <laughs> yes.
0: We all age, and this year we had a movie to show us, But uh, and also now we have a podcast to show the specifically four of us. That is the <laughs> most personal and uninteresting this podcast is going to get because the rest will be It'd telling be. you... These three professional film reviewers, top ten films of the year, and I, because I had a weird off year of many other different types of media, be it comic books or television shows or animated series. see all the different podcasts that we uh, host on this uh area, I'm going to give you five movies that I am guaranteed to purchase and rewatch at least three times that were released Whoa. this year. What it's worth noting that
3: people. the uh, first ever top tens we did it uh, the caveat was Dave says because he has a quote, real job, he didn't see enough movies. So this is yes. nothing has changed. <laughs> yeah, I'm still
0: a potato. <laughs> I just classify <laughs> my other job differently now, and
1: I have seen everything. yes uh-huh. Uh-huh. as always uh-huh. Uh-huh. I, I have uh, I have made strategic gaps in my viewing. You didn't see
3: Blended, Uh, David? How dare you? I
1: didn't see Blended. I'm curious if some of the movies I chose not to see will come up in this episode. I, I think not, but we'll see.
0: Interesting. Interesting. All right. Well, the way we're going to do this is we're going to go Katie, Patches, David, counting down 10 to 1. Every two, I'll jump in with one of my five. That sounds ridiculous when I speak it out loud, but written out, it makes complete sense. (laughs) We're going to start with Katie, number 10. And, uh, you know, I don't know. I haven't seen Katie recently. I moved. So maybe under her skin is some sort of weird alien thing. Yeah.
3: I identified very closely with this movie um i almost wish i had put this movie up higher though i don't know where what i would have swapped out for something that's higher on this list but uh under the skin i caught really late after kind of a wave of hype a lot of people had talked about it i think was it discussed on the show without me at some point
0: i believe so yes that might okay. have been our bros episode where we covered oh, yeah. like five movies and it was awesome
3: yeah so there yeah there was a, there was a point this year when it came out i was a around so i caught it late and i was really taken by it Scarlett Hansen is really great in it. Uh, there's so many, like the score is great. The atmosphere of it is great. It's one of those movies where you don't really understand what's going on, but it doesn't matter because you kind of get on some instinctive level what it's trying to do at the same time, which I often don't cotton on to, but on this one I really did. Um, I don't know if I should talk about it. Dave, should I talk about it a lot or is it going to come up again later?
0: I think it's going to come up again
1: later. So right. maybe we just have Why an introduction to Under the Why didn't I like this movie? That's what my big Why? question is
3: here. Did you just not get it, Patches? No, I, did. I got it. it. Did I...
1: you wait, Patches, did you get it? <laughs> Did you get it? God damn that! Question. You get
3: that the black who's a metaphor, right? What does it
1: all mean, man?
0: Yeah, it's like a movie that's a poem. I was like, this, you know, I know someone who's know. gonna like this. This movie was
4: made for me. Like, it's such nerd ass shit, but also is it though? Shit.
1: It's not really. on. I can't keep <laughs> up with this lingo. Mm,
0: well, to be continued. A little further on, uh, we're going to go to patches. Patches, tell us about if you can remember the plot of Still Alice. <laughs> Oh man.
1: <laughs> uh yeah, still out. I was. thought you were referring to a movie that came out like January and that was the and I, That I was low. Hotel. <laughs> nope, got you all. Oh, much more depressing
4: <laughs> little hint there. Um yeah, still Alice got to see at Toronto. I I don't think is it in theaters yet. No. It's hard to tell no. with this. It was in run theaters thing. for
1: one week for a qualifying run. It will return to theaters in the middle of January. Gotcha.
4: David spent an entire week complaining there wasn't a trailer uh, for this movie because so maybe it would have made his top funny, ten no or his top five. But justified. <laughs> yeah, that's true. Uh, yeah, I I adore this movie. I thought it might place higher on my top ten, but I I was saying before our podcast that I have trouble making these top 10 lists because I get really stressed out about knocking kind of good movies out of contention. This year I just felt like there were maybe two or three great films and a lot of very good films, and it was hard for me to kind of numerically determine where those good films should be. Um, but for me, I was going to put Still Alice at number 10 because most of it rides on Julianne Moore and Kristen Stewart,
1: who I was really taking I, by I this saw movie. over at HitFix – that I was, I was very pleasantly surprised to see that you and Chris Tapley decided that Julianne Moore's performance was the best performance of 2014. It's true. And yeah, I actually, that was you
4: know? a big debate because Chris and I had to kind of combine list and uh, Julianne Moore was at the top of mine and not at the top of his. So, But when we crunched numbers, she still prevailed. And the way I describe it in that is – I find her to be a keystone of this movie that just shouldn't work for me. That's going to be too saccharine. It's going to be too sappy. It's going to be too uh, miserable. Miserableist um, about, you know, this is a movie about Alice. She's a professor. I think she's a professor of the brain, maybe, uh, not neurology, of, of but linguistics. No. linguistics maybe. Oh, okay, yeah. linguistics, you know, yeah. Her entire life revolves around speaking to people, relaying information. And of course, she gets early onset Alzheimer's and starts losing this ability. <laughs> well, of course, of course, in the like, Overly dramatic world of of little tiny dramas like this uh, to pull our heartstrings by design. Uh, But – and yet I think Julianne Moore carries this movie so elegantly because it's all reserved. It's all contemplative. It's all – it really – it doesn't go there ever. Uh, It doesn't – she's not breaking down crying. Uh, She's struggling with this – problem, but she's trying to approach it like a real human being might, someone who is an intellectual, someone who does care about her family and does see a future. Uh, she's trying to solve this problem. And that's what I f- found so devastating and so beautiful about it. And then these small interactions that she has with her family members, like what do you tell your older daughter who might relate? You know, She discovers in the film that you can um, get your genes checked out and, and tell your kids if they too might uh, encounter early onset Alzheimer's, and Kate Bosworth's character has to kind of confront that notion. And Kristen Stewart has an amazing part where she she just wants to know what it's like for her mother to ex- be experiencing this, and she's an actress. She too is going to put her whole life on on communicating with people and and speaking. And she, and she chooses not to find out
3: if she has the genes, so she also has kind wow, of an extra well, element that's of
4: I don't, uh, think it's, I don't think it's too – I don't think there's too much to spoil It's here, something but that
3: doesn't happen.
4: I don't believe that takes away anything from the, the dramatic nuance between these conversations. And I also really like Alec Baldwin in this film as her husband, someone who's trying to still be a career man for the rest of his life despite his wife undergoing this. Like how much do your – do these lives change when this happens to one person and how much do you sacrifice and how much – yeah, it, it, I just think it finds all the right beats in all the right order, and Julianne Moore is really the keystone there. That's what I keep describing yeah, as the keystone.
1: This, this movie's going to catch a lot of shit for not only for the the very lazy sort of Lifetime movie of the week criticism, but also for uh, it being about a privileged white, you know, liberal uh, New York family. Uh, but I think that's actually in in some ways with this particular. Story with this particular alzheimer story uh uses sort of against its characters to gain effect that in how all of their privilege is dissolved by yeah uh, this obstacle i think it, it's not to say that it, it is more upsetting because they're privileged and these privileged people should be living privileged lives and not afflicted with neurological uh disorders but it is nevertheless galling to see how uh just how the lives they built for themselves, and how entrenched they are in this community, and and uh, how ostensibly successful they are, is just rendered to rubble. Uh, yeah, this movie, as Pat just said, would have been on my list if uh, if Sony had gotten their shit together. <laughs> but so That's the
4: reason.
3: Wow, uh, way to pick on Sony in their time of distress,
1: David.
3: <laughs> yeah. They don't uh,
4: just to wrap up, I mean anyone who's listened to our quarter quills can understand why this movie in particular may have affected me uh, recently. And yeah, it was just moved and and reservation is the key for Still Alice. I, I really just like everything that Julianne Moore doesn't do
1: in this movie. It's pretty perfect. Yeah. that's just one of the most devastating movies I've ever seen in my life. <laughs> <laughs> yeah,
4: I just wish uh... David and I could have been holding hands while we were talking. Know, we one.
3: should all have a viewing of Still Alice yes. on our 40th birthday and contemplate mortality. Or maybe Patches, when you turn 30, we'll all watch it together.
0: I, w- I uh-huh. will survive to one of <laughs> those events.
3: <laughs> no, we, maybe Patches' 30th birthday, if you're lucky. Maybe
0: Patches' 30th birthday, if you're lucky. <laughs> if you are listening to Cory Quails, you know that I think I could just walk into a college party. So obviously, I'm not living that long. <laughs> David, tell me why bamboo women are the best women
1: damn boo that sounds vaguely racist um my number 10 is uh sao takahata's final film the tale of the princess kaguya which was this year's studio ghibli film he hopes uh, it's not his final film fyi but it is definitely to, his final film. His final film i, I because think, he's very old
3: or because he's been like black takahata because...
1: no he's old as shit well he's very but old
4: but also ghibli is not in the movie yeah, making mode right no. now
1: takahata's Definitely done. He would
4: love to make – he was weeping at the screening of this at
1: Toronto, just being like,
3: I want to make one more movie.
1: Yeah. All right. We'll take it like 15 years. Talk
3: about devastating still Alice. Jesus. Uh,
1: Yeah. yeah, No. Uh, Anyway, Tale of Princess Kaguya, I think we've talked about it at length on the show. Uh, It's this, um, you know, folkloric piece of animation uh, gorgeously drawn in charcoal and watercolour. Uh, the story of this princess who falls. This ancient Japanese legend of this princess who falls from the moon and is raised by two uh, two woodcutters, a man and his wife. They don't have any children. Uh, they their lives are sort of. Take on a preoccupation with material possessions. When they meet this girl, they move into the city. Uh, She—it's hard to explain—but she enables them uh, certain riches. They train her how to be a woman of the time. She wants to escape. It gets very sad. Uh, it, it is just uh, it is stunningly beautiful. As stunningly beautiful as animation gets. It and a, a common refrain for me is when I see Studio Ghibli movies is uh, that this is the kind of thing. Uh, that reminds us that movies like Frozen look like pig vomit and we are terrible people for allowing this to happen (laughs) and we're doing an enormous disservice to our children who you may as well just brand their eyes shut. I mean, if this is the fucking garbage we're putting in front of them. Anyway, uh, yeah. Their is, uh, eyes <laughs> uh, well they're not missing much if that's what you're forcing them to watch uh yeah this is a, a really beautiful amazing movie it's 137 minutes long which is a uh, epic for uh for an animated film you can imagine how long it took takahata and his team to make it but uh it really is so well it's so patient and and well considered and it builds to a finale of really overwhelming power and
4: i just started bawling at the yeah. end of this movie i could not have seen it coming everything that happens at the end again it's about aging it's about expectations it's about all of life it just feels so relevant despite being
1: hundreds of years old uh, <laughs> uh yeah it's uh and and you know i think as to what patches is saying like it, it does feel very relevant but they don't do anything to force the story it's all in just the urgency of its telling Um, and it it is still very much rooted in the Japan of old. Uh, There are no gimmicky choices to bring it to life. It's very sort of in touch with that past, but uh, is able to transcend it as well. It's a beautiful, beautiful movie and uh it's if only we bad. could have
4: heard Chloe
1: Grace Moretz uh, right right uh, <laughs> i
3: i think is, i have that version on screener if you want to yeah know. you know
1: it's the wind rises was really the greatest offender of this as far as you know ghibli films that are explicitly about the japanese experience about japanese culture that make no sense in english uh it, the wind rises was you know about japan in the 20th century and hearing it in a dub would be bizarre and uh, this movie is still explicitly about japan if not a, a slightly a japan of legend but uh the trailer that i saw with chloe grace moretz and the other english voices was really horrid uh, i was fortunate enough to see it in japanese in uh, toronto uh anyway really great movie and i can only hope that uh their final film for now uh when marnie arrives whatever the shit it's something about marnie um, I'm trying to keep it in the distance so I can just enjoy it, is, uh, <laughs> so as good. Well,
0: we might have a little uh, brief nod to it later on on somebody else's list, but mm. we're going to continue on to our number nines with a slight reminder that in the show notes to this episode, I say reminder like I've said it before, but this is the first one I'm telling you, there's a link to a tag called Top 10 2014 that will link you to all the episodes where anything that we mentioned on this show was talked about so you could have back on back information on all these episodes in case you don't want to listen to all of us <laughs> go on about how we liked Why some of our overlap movies that? We well, clearly I mean, want that. Everything in moderation, Patrick.
3: Maybe they want there. more on how much mm, we like more.
0: these movies. Yes. You get to control the influx of your information using the tag, <laughs> Top 10 2014, in the description for this episode. But meanwhile, let's go to the only movie with an exclamation point on it uh, that appears in this Top 10 with Katie's number nine film.
3: Guys, we are the best. So fucking good. So it good. Makes me w- It makes me want to bang on drums and scream and to cut my hair sport and wear giant sweaters. If you uh, if you play 90s style, it makes you want to be a Rayanne and not an Angela. It is God. so good and like life-affirming and exciting to see girls get to be music snobs. And every time you think this movie is going to do something that feels kind of cliched or feels false, it just nails every single beat in this friendship between these two girls who then invite a third girl who has actual musical talent into their band. Um, and I like so much that it sets up this dynamic between the girl who's our hero, who's named Bobo, which is a name that I'm so happy exists in Sweden and I don't Yes now to, that okay. you
4: have a, now when you you have a child it will be Bobo Ni-
3: I know. Well, I don't want to. I don't even want to know if it's a nickname or if that's like a thing that people go by. Bobo
0: Baltus.
1: Bo- Bo- Bobo. <laughs> <laughs> Bobo coming, Rich. Come on, Patches. Bobo we want Rich this kid to live. Like, uh... Bobo
3: Rich can rule the world. Bobo Rich would
1: be a great stars. rapper.
3: <laughs> 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 well, whoever, wh- whatever my Bobo turns out to be, I hope that she takes after this one. Well, actually, I'm actually no, I don't. This girl, the girl who's our heroine, is confused like any twelve year old, and she is friends with a girl who is a lot more charismatic and kind of willing to shove her weight around, and, and you know whatever small amount of weight a 12 year old girl has she shoves around and they do crazy shit like begging strangers for change to be able to buy instruments and basically muscling their way into a rehearsal room over these like 18 year old dudes and they just keep making it work even though their band isn't that good and the movie is so honest about girls being jealous of each other and girls trying to get boys to like them and kind of the really dumb things you do to get boys to like you when you're 12 which is not an effective thing any adult would do. It's it's so joyful and understanding of its characters, and then just real. And it, it has that kind of punk spirit of you feel like you're kind of sticking it to the man just by watching this movie, which is such a thrill. I really loved this movie. It's kind of like a pure joy bomb. I think. I was going to
4: put this on my top ten, and then I knew you would.
3: So I, <laughs> I like I don't know that. No, it's a bad uh, strategy. Uh, no, mm. it's, uh, it's democratic. I think <laughs> this
0: is the only foreign new foreign film i saw this year that i would tell other people to watch which well, it's on, is it's my on
3: netflix instant right is that how you watch yes it? yeah, it's it's yeah. my
0: fault it's my fault also for not seeing more foreign films but you know at least if you have that one you could fall back on during the holidays to not look like a like an idiot that yeah. we are the best is a great one
3: it's a good movie to sound snobby and tell people to like and then if they watch it they'll be like oh my god this movie is so fun this isn't a boring foreign film at all it's a yeah. it's a win-win for everybody <laughs>
0: It's great, and oh, while, you're stre- while you're streaming, patches is number nine choice. Might be. Oh yeah, I
4: an can already decision. hear David Ehrlich making Mister Turner grunts <laughs> at this oh, choice. No. Is it <sighs> a um, actually, the first time I heard about uh, reactions to this movie was probably David lambasting it out of Berlin, uh, Snowpiercer. And, oh shit, uh,
3: David, you don't like Snowpiercer. I, I don't
4: lambasting
1: is strong. Okay, actually, you <laughs> know what? Like this is also strong. Well, I
4: think that you were having you were having reactions to uh, like a fandom kind of yes. surrounding Snowpiercer I, I in anticipation.
1: This, I think this movie is very good. Uh, well, that's that's a relief. I, but less but, like, Mr. Not, Turner grunting then. <laughs> like not anywhere near my top twenty-five. But like it's fine. Fair. Go on. Uh, this well, is your okay. show, Patches. Here we go. When I
4: when I <laughs> when I say nerd ass shit under the skin is not it is a little more artful than that but this just hit like every nerve of when i used to work at ugo um reading comic books all day and talking to jordan hoff about science fiction movies and just like looking for imagination and looking for where design and character and bizarre ideas and and metaphor can kind of converge all in one place and just smack you over the <laughs> side the head you know it is really blunt Snowpiercer, And and that's something I actually appreciate about it, um, that it can be so forceful and so in your face about everything from, you know, eating crickets, th- those gelatin cubes that they Ugh. eat, um, to these really masterful action sequences, the axe fight or when they're being pursued by uh, the, the assassin guy who's working the Gestapo basically. You know, I, I look at a movie like The Raid 2 and I see people flip out about it and it just seems so – um, indulgent and excessive for all the wrong reasons. I just feel like every beat that uh, Bong Jun ho puts into this movie exists to propel it forward, both in ideas, character, and and action. Uh, I find it very immersive, and you, despite it having some kind of fuzzy CG uh, moments that maybe take some other people out of it, that that added to uh, the, the the comic book nature of this movie for me. I, I find it to be very splashy and graphic. And and adds to a silliness that runs through it that that, Tilda Swinton supports the bad CG in this movie sometimes um, because everything can be so extravagant and animated. Um, This really uh, just did it for me.
3: I I like Snow Snowpiercer was probably also almost on my list and then I didn't put it on, but not because I thought you would, but I do have a hard time getting around the ending of the movie, and I don't want to spoil it too much, but I do feel like the silliness kind of gets tripped up on its own silliness a bit at the end, like it, it stops feeling authentic to whatever world it's created and kind of digs into like plot mechanics that felt more comic booky in a bad way to me because and of I, explanations
1: yeah i think yeah, that's how it's handled of, like, because i think the, way, like, the, the events th- of the ending are crucial to the narrative and yeah. what it's trying to say but i think how they're handled is really really clumsy
0: yeah i mean it's it, but it's it, at least it's reinforcing the themes more so than it's also telling you what's happening. Like the, it's also I, reinforcing its risk-taking nature. Yeah, yeah. But it's like it's not it's not the the architect at the end of the Matrix telling you why you should have cared. It just adds another well, layer onto the metaphor of the what yeah. what it is. I, Everything in this opinion. movie just
1: is like slightly slightly off. For me, like the only thing in this movie that works perfectly is Tilda Swinton, and everything yeah, else is, is like... just is just uh, right off See, the I, rails. Well, I th- a, that's what way. makes
0: it great science fiction, though, is it's like that little bit where it's like, this could never be mainstream. No, this no, is I'm my not metaphor. About in the, mind.
1: I'm not talking about the sort of the broader things, I'm talking about like just the way scenes are put together, the way sure. it's paced, uh-huh. uh, the way the actions cut. It's just all off, and it, every scene I'm like, I know Bong Joon Ho is capable of a slightly better version of this, and I think this is a very good movie. Uh, but what makes me think that he is a truly great filmmaker is that it's also the worst film he's ever made, and uh, so you know he's. But, I, you know, I, I'm still a fan. But I have a yeah, question. I, oh, I just
4: think that the the actors in this really massage those points for me. I think Chris mm-hmm. Evans is such a formidable lead, and like. In contrast to what he does in Captain America, which I, I obviously – Captain America, the first Avenger was on my top ten not too long ago. Uh, so I, I crush on this guy. I have a man, man crush. Um, but I like that they continue to subvert him, that he can be so ragged and, and that type of hero uh, hero, and then later just have this tragedy strike him down. Like this movie can contain that. This movie can stomach all this bizarre, gnarly stuff. Um, And again, I love Octavia Spencer in this movie. Um, One of the better roles she's ever had, just being a tough broad. I love that stuff. And John Hurt playing this character, like, uh, he seems... Like he might be part of the matrix, but uh, he, he's just full of mystery, and everything seems there's a new discovery in every car, and that's something I really like. That it seems very thought through, every you know down to oh we have uh, aquariums on the train for sushi purposes and eating luxurious meals once a year. I just love that that really does it to me. World building. I'm a Roger Ebert in this way. It takes just mm. a little bit of thought and and execution, and I'm kind of. All sold on it. Uh, so yeah, what, I, what Piercer, I think yeah. of
3: when I think of Snowpiercer is Allison Pill, like as an example of like a single actor kind of showing up and just nailing that, it in one scene. I like that I scene mean,
4: play in a movie. Like it just doesn't make it any doesn't sense.
3: make it, it makes no sense. And it's really it makes great perfect. And I, it, it, that's one of the things I really love about Snowpiercer is like you were saying, like all these actors really filling out this world, and you feeling like you know every, anything that comes around in the next car is going to be completely crazy, but also make perfect sense within the world they've established.
4: Yeah. So Beautiful. it was it was either going to be Snowpiercer or Edge of Tomorrow for me, and I wanted Edge of Tomorrow on my top ten, but I couldn't make it. I couldn't swing it, uh, so I went with Snowpiercer.
0: Mm, well, maybe it'll die and repeat. David, your number nine <laughs> also involves a man's reaction to an environment in snow. I'm reaching, but it's it's <laughs> you. You go there for me. I don't.
1: I don't think you have to reach quite that far to make the connection. I think uh, it was there for you. But my number nine is uh, Ruben Ostlund's. Force Majeure, uh, which is really great. Did we did we talk about yeah. this on the show? We must have. I don't know. No,
0: we haven't actually.
1: I think that this is going to be remembered as one of the defining films of this year, maybe even more so than some of the films that are higher up on my list. But I think uh, this acid black comedy um, about a – Family. It's very similar to we. I I must. I remember these words coming out of my mouth on the show. Anyway, it's very. I think similar we ch- to, chatted very briefly. Uh, to, uh, loneliest planet, uh, Julia Lockhead's film from a few years ago. It's about a family mm-hmm. who is on vacation skiing somewhere, and they're doing controlled avalanches at the restaurant adjacent to where they're having lunch, and. The snow comes towards them a little bit closer than they would like and everyone begins to freak out and the father runs away from the table in the heat of the moment, leaving – grabbing his cell phone but leaving his children and his (laughs) wife behind in in the split-second decision Uh, and his his marriage, uh, his relationship with his children uh, will never be the same to put it mildly. Uh, It's such a savagely funny and, and brilliant study of gender dynamics in both in and out of relationships. Um, how these perceived slights and and things can ferment between other people inside individuals Uh, some of the best scenes of the movie are about sort of the not just the in the moment stuff between he and his wife when they are trying to work out what happened but just in his own head as he tries to reconcile his own self-image with what happened this brilliant scene that People have cited a lot involving him and his friend uh, sitting on the snow beach. When The greatest or, scene of the year. Uh, I mean it's so – there's so many great scenes in this movie. Um, and you know it's a good film because Brady Corbett shows up for one scene. <laughs> which Stamp which of is really a movie. the hallmark of quality these days between Eden and the clouds of Sils Maria and this and like literally three other movies. Like I'm not even going to exaggerate. I can't even think of it right now. Um but uh, yeah I really 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 love this movie I only saw it the once but I think that uh, if this movie were in English um, it would have been uh, it could it could be birdman you know yeah. oh I I'd think buy that, that
3: the uh, I- I like Loneliest Planet a lot too, but I think the comparison is a little misleading if only because Loneliest Planet is kind of like devastating and, de- devastating, devastating and meditative and very kind of slow and force majeure as soon as a, a very similar incident happens. It just gets so funny and it's so much about social dynamics and the people around them and them justifying themselves to the people around them and then like the the couple who they hang out with, the Brady Corbett couple and then another couple and even like the maintenance guy in the hotel. Like it's so much about social dynamics, which makes it funnier than the lonely. Loneliest Planet. I think I, I enjoyed it immensely in a way. that but also Loneliest a lot of Planet like, I never would have said
4: light pump right. Uh, the music really lends itself to something epic. Oh yeah. And then the mundanity of of yeah. going up the the hills and like <laughs> being with your family on vacation is so boring. Riding on the uh, bus. Like, what is life? Uh,
1: I, I well, although I really it, turns, wanted to, it turns riding on the bus into one of the most harrowing things that uh, <laughs> you, know, you can imagine. Um, yeah. Yeah. This I, is a, I wanted this is on
4: my top 10 so
1: bad. And I, I, I did just too. It I tried hard. I I'm, I'm happy to, to you know, Thank leave you. the charge for it all. And there's actually, if you're in the New York area, there's going to be a Ruben Ostlin's retrospective. He, he's still relatively young, I think, but um, of all of his work at Film Society of Lincoln Center next month. So I hope they show his ski
4: videos because that's where he <laughs> cut his teeth. He, he yeah. Is it really? a ski filmmaker, yeah. And then he decided to return to skiing for this. No wonder it's his best film. It's huh. only 40. Fuck that guy.
0: <laughs> All right. My number five film that I will be rewatching more than once is Snowpiercer. That's why I let you guys go on about it Woo! much longer than yeah. we should go on about any other film in this countdown. But yeah, Snowpiercer is great. I like it. sci watch yourself
4: watching it over and over.
0: I think without knowing the form of my list, you're going to find that uh, sequences that I could return to are going to be a big thing Mm. and uh, just like overall films that aren't necessarily as plot hinged as other things you might have heard me like on this podcast and whatnot. Rewatchability isn't necessarily sitting down and enjoying something like Under the Skin isn't going to be on my list because that's like an experience you should like sit down and focus on and honestly I don't do that a lot. If something's going to be rewatched a lot, it's got to have like sequences, it's got to have a strong through line and it's got to be fun. So more of that coming You're up. You're a monster. <laughs> I like your bravery. <laughs> Hey, I'm just doing rewatch. I'm not saying best or greatest yeah. or I'm not yeah, it's great. I'm not putting anything down, David. Not putting anything down. It's one way to watch. Put you down. Well, I'm also not learning anything either, which you might actually do watching Katie's number 8 pick. Wow. Ooh.
3: All right. So my number 8 comes with it has to come with a confession of ignorance because until I saw Citizen 4, I had never watched a single video of Edward Snowden. I had seen that screenshot of him in that white t-shirt sitting in that room on like every web page I'd been to. And I might mean, write about it, I was aware of the situation to some degree, you know, to the extent to which someone who writes professionally about other things would be. But I had never heard him talk. And I am trusting the opinions of people who knew more about Snowden and thinking that this movie was a revelation, that it wasn't just my total ignorance about him that made Citizen Four so riveting to me. But just the just the, the historical significance of a movie that is inside something so big, is kind of enough to make you really sit up and stay like sit up and pay attention but the way that citizen 4 moves and the way that it lays out the situation and that Laura Poitras is kind of within this really tense space and lets you feel that tension without kind of pumping it up with anything that feels artificial i think it it does so much with this incredible access, which couldn't have been an easy thing to do because, you know, you're getting to know somebody, you're sitting in the room with Stode and you're watching it all happen. And she contrasts the, you know, intensity of what he's doing with him, putting gel in his hair and watching a Selena Gomez video on the hotel television while he's waiting for the national news to break. There's just so many little he's details. Like I mean, he <laughs> and he is. And the like. these are the things that you never, ever get to see for people who are at the center of news like this. I mean, I think of, You know, Chelsea Manning, who did something similarly groundbreaking, whether or not, I mean, whether or not it was a similar action, but we know very little about her situation because there was not a Laura Poitras there to document it. It makes you wish that there was someone like that for anyone who's ever made major world history. You're
4: glad Alex Gibney didn't get his hands on uh, Edward Snowden. Yeah. (laughs) I mean,
3: and I like Alex Gibney movies, but yeah, I don't want to see anyone else's Snowden movie because I feel like this one says so much. And It's not that it's really showing you the man behind Edward Snowden. Like, he's really clear during the movie about not wanting it to be about him. He doesn't want to give biographical details. He doesn't bring up his girlfriend for a while, even though you see him calling her and being obviously concerned about her safety. Like, he's trying to really be this anonymous person while also allowing this documentary to be filmed. And the cracks that show through that and the way that Laura Poise just really carefully doles that out. Makes it really fascinating. I, I really look forward to seeing it again. I haven't watched it since my first screening, but I feel like even though it's about a story that you all know, that we all know the beats of because it's history now, it's something that I think would, would reveal a lot on multiple viewings.
0: Patches has filed for a continuance on Citizen <laughs> Four, as it is also his number eight film. <laughs> yes, hey! ding, ding, ding. Did we win something when we have yeah. this. Is the first it's crossover of very few crossovers. So congratulations, right. I suppose. Right.
4: The the only thing I'd really add is, I mean. Katie concentrated on the part of this film that is just Edward Snowden, and I agree that that is the most riveting material. Just to see this guy at work and see his thought process too. You know, last Christmas I was drunk off my ass, yelling at my parents about Edward Snowden because they think he's like <laughs> traitor, and I was just like,
3: "Fuck you!" Um, Wait, I, I they think
4: that. he's a
3: traitor, or you think he's a traitor? Well, they're
4: like, we don't believe in what he does. Uh, you know, we th- he's he's kind of a bad guy. I don't think he's a traitor. I, I was I was standing up for him. I'm like, we needed this out in the world, and now I'm just like telling them you got to see Citizen Four. And I think there are a lot It'll of other patches people.
3: family holiday fight this year. Yeah, probably. Is <laughs> no,
4: this year is, is has its own set of topics. Don't worry. Yeah. Um, but I, I think this would get a lot of people to reconsider. It's important to see someone's thought process along with uh, the the ends you know you want to see the means and the ends you need to know it all and we rarely get that chance especially with the media shitstorm which Laura Poitras also includes in this film the cap you know there's a third of the movie that's dedicated to the aftermath and the life that she had to lead afterward and and the chaos and and greenwald and all the fallout there and Julian Assange being a moron uh, and then and the lead up to uh, like getting or that those first conversations with Snowden via encrypted emails, and I we we often talk about editing on this podcast and whether uh, it exists or it does it or or what what it means to have great editing. But I really do think that Poitras was smart to hire hire Mathilde Bonifoy who did Run Lola Run to kind of give this uh, like a genre film edge to, to make this into a thriller, to have these elements. It's 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 not just watch, sitting there watching Edward Snowden raw footage. That wouldn't give me the same impact. That needs to have the control of great filmmaking, and it really it really does.
0: Citizen Four. I'm trying to – it's so hard to contrast no. and the Citizen Four. Yeah, what's, or, the, no, no, what's the Snowden
3: and I want to hear it.
0: <laughs> All right. Um, uh up next, a secret we don't want to be kept from the American people. <laughs> the highest ranking music film on this year's countdown lists. David, your number eight film. You know, that was pretty good. Thank that
1: you. Yeah, uh, <laughs> a tight spot. That was pretty good. Uh number eight on my list this year is Stuart Murdoch of Bell and Sebastian's feature film debut, God uh-huh. Help the Girl. Which is uh <laughs> Yeah, one of the. I mean, I I watched this movie. Uh, I, let's say, three hundred and twelve times. <laughs> no, I, I I may have seen this movie front to back seven or eight times. Um, just uh, at home, mostly after seeing it in theaters the first time. Uh,
4: Cutout still frames are taped all over your trapper keeper. Yeah. Oh my so god. Hey, seriously yeah. though,
1: like that's that's the uh, that's that's what the vibe that I was. On if I had been a little bit younger or a lot bit younger, but I this is a musical about kids growing up in Glasgow and starting a band. Um, it is a semi autobiographical origin story of sorts for Bell and Sebastian, but really, the the in that you know, Emily Browning, who plays the lead character, uh, suffers from needing eating disorder. Stuart Murdoch suffers from um, uh, what's its chronic fatigue, um, still does, but I uh, it's like cake or something. <laughs> no. no um, really? And it's just a, it's just a musical about about growing up and, and the things you lose and the things you need and and how other people sort of affect who you are. And it has – it's just the energy of it and the sense of place that it produces uh, and the music, of course. I mean like I'm a Bell and Sebastian fan but I'm not really a Bell and Sebastian super fan. Um, and so I felt like this movie could break either way. And reading the Sundance reviews, I was actually expecting to loathe it to be honest and um, – I, man, I just I every beat here. There's an infectious energy. The 16 millimeter uh, shooting on 16 millimeter. It was so perfect for the mood they're trying to achieve. Um, there's a weird uh, surreality to what's happening, where in a way that most musicals do, but this more subtly uh, and, and with like a with a recklessness violates the rules of the real world that I found really charming. And the actors, Ollie Moss, not Ollie Moss. He's a fucking poster designer, Ollie Alexander. <laughs> yeah. And, uh, um, and the girl from game of Thrones, Hannah Murray. And, right. and then, uh, my, one of my picks for best performance of the year. Uh, Emily Browning in as the lead role, um, who is just a knock? I mean, her voice is wonderful. She's perfect in this role. It was a real revelation after um, winding up in projects like Pompeii and Sucker Punch. Uh, Sleeping Beauty showed that she had a penchant for a more interesting, ultra type of work. But she is just such a force of nature in this movie. And uh, man, I, I just fell so hard for this movie. And I hope more people see it. It has. I'm always weird. I'm always surprised when people tell me they don't like it as. Virulently as they don't, it really strikes a negative chord with people, and i I can I understand know. not loving it, but i that reaction seems strange to me. But well, I mean I,
4: it. To- it- Grapples with some some delicate subjects, and if you don't think that it does so in, a, in an insightful way or, or in a in an artful way then you would have a negative reaction to it I mean you bought into it and and other people don't and I don't care for the the, the stretching of reality either I think it's a real it's a big mistake it's a departure from what uh, it's spinning in the first half of the movie I think it goes completely off the rails and has no idea what the movie he's making is, 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 about or, or, well, you know, it's yeah, that feeling
1: yeah. of when you're in the, as I, I know mind. well from, from my, uh, all of my experience in bands, I uh, had <laughs> feeling of gathering some friends together and starting a band and, and not knowing where it's going to go. And every day and every situation you're in feeling like uh, the potential for the future that anything's possible. I mean, that's really, this is the story about, this is a film about three people who for the last summer in their lives still believe that everything is possible. And it is a very wistful, bittersweet film because you see that opportunity that they think exists for them sort of slowly being suffocated, uh, and, and their lives growing smaller and smaller. And I just found it so affecting and I will watch this movie for the rest of my life. I loved it dearly. And, uh, end oh
4: well it's really? Our only our only musical no it's our highest deal.
0: rating one we are the best is i uh, oh, would yeah, also classify as none of us villain. put on whiplash i knew david
1: wouldn't but uh I, yeah. I i wanted i yeah really... none of us put on whiplash good for us yeah.
2: no yeah. i'm, I'm, I'm not I,
0: I wanted I hey, hey hey we got enough hey, we got enough hey, movies patches, patches. don't, don't yourself to blame <laughs> yeah you restrain yourself that. you know why patches you know why you should restrain yourself why because if it's in a word and if it's in a look
3: Oh it's God. in Katie
0: Rich's Never 7 pick.
3: Holy shit. I watched this movie under great dress. I did not want to watch it. I refused to watch it. I don't do horror movies very well. Mm-hmm. I watched this movie clutching my cat, laying on my bed. I literally looked up the Wikipedia summary so that I would know what was happening, and I was still scared to death. The Babadook is a really good movie. Babadook. The fact that I put it on my top ten after that really speaks to what it has going for it beyond just scaring the hell out of somebody. Because I don't I don't trust myself as an objective viewer of a horror movie because I get really freaked out really easily. I act I mean I don't seek them out. I can't say what's the best horror movie that's come out in the last ten years because I haven't seen most of them. I never saw the conjuring, et cetera. But the Babadook really reminded me of how horror can be a great place for a director to prove themselves and the movie's director Jennifer Kent it's her first movie and it's such a really good way to show off your your skills with mood and tone and cinematography and the way that you can establish this mundane space which in this case is just a you know pretty normal looking home and turn it into horror with you know I, I mean I don't know what the budget this, but it couldn't have been a lot like the, it's making Seven so dollars. much yeah it's making so much out of nothing which is what makes it so compelling and it's a that it looks great and that the, the, the villain, the Babadook, is just the scariest thing you've ever seen. Like I cannot think of a of a horror movie ghost monster that has affected me more. But
1: also strangely adorable, I found.
3: Yeah, oh, I mean, oh, I got that Christmas card
1: in his
4: Santa costume.
3: Oh, oh my god, oh. I I that Babadook hug. Yeah. <laughs> um, but it's that and then it's also that the screenplay is really thoughtful and there's all these themes going on. And even in the beginning of the movie before anything supernatural has happened, you get this scene where uh, the mother played by Etsy Davis is sleeping and her son is kind of leaning on her and he's grinding his teeth. And you feel the discomfort of what that is and the closeness of that relationship and how it might drive somebody crazy. And the uh, the, authentic- the authenticity of the emotions that it sets up early on really drive this horror story that emerges and makes it make perfect sense. And it gets someone like me who usually just avoids a horror movie at all costs to really feel what's going on in it because the psychology of it makes sense. And we talk about psychological horror a lot. And I think that the Babadook really shows how difficult that can be and then what it means when it's pulled off well because it just means so much. And a monster like the Babadook Duke feels right to you because you can attach it to any number of things that happen in real life. And then also is super supernatural and scary and will keep you from sleeping properly at night. I really I loved hope, it.
4: I hope this doesn't af- negatively affect your relationship with Bobo. Uh, Bobo
3: <laughs> the Boba versus Bobo. Yeah. We've oh, created Bobo Rich.
0: Bobo Rich. Created yeah, I mean. and uh, like doomed Bobo rich
1: in one episode
0: Bobo rich
3: that, it, I mean you guys maybe see the Boba Duke. I would not have seen it if you two hadn't uh, patches and David had not talked about it so much, so it's all your fault
1: it's the best it's so good,
0: oh, another difficult segue um, if <laughs> yes, we want to please. talk about women discovering unexpected things about themselves. maybe we want to talk about patches number seven pick.
4: Yes, uh, my, my that's that was a wonderful segue. I'm
0: doing my best,
4: um, David, Tell me how to say Powell Pawlowski. Is that I how don't you say know. it? What just because Pew- Bible- I'm Jewish? 다음에. Thanks. Is it <laughs> Powell
3: Pawlowski? <Brazil? laughs>
4: I just thought no, your pa- novel No, is there a K in
3: there? It was uh, Paul
4: Powell, Pawlowski, I believe. Sure. Ida. Uh, I believe it's Eide. pronounced Ida, not Ida. Yeah. They say the uh, name.
3: They say the name of the movie. It's Ida. I think.
4: Yes, I believe it is Ida. So, uh, yes, I'm going with Pawakowski's pa- Ida. Uh, the, the story takes place in 1960s Poland. It is beautiful, black and white. Uh, I believe it's a, like Academy-framed aspect ratio. This is not not a widescreen film. He wants uh, that
1: Academy Award. Yeah. <laughs> He's going to get me it. it. Academy. I'm pandering. I filmed, I filmed in your fucking ratio. Give me the award. <laughs> Give it to me.
4: <laughs> uh, yeah, and I found this uh, – the sort of here's here's an example of cinematography playing exactly into what this film is exploring on a thematic level, a historical level, a character level. Um you know, this is the story of a- uh Anna who is going to become a nun. I don't believe she's she hasn't gone full nun. She's <laughs> on the road to nun. nunnery, I don't know. Um and she discovers that uh she is in fact the child of of Jews who have been killed Jews. during uh Nazi occupation, okay. Um, and and she goes and visits her, her aunt, uh, played uh, one of my favorite performances of the year, Agatha Kulesa. This is – I'm just going to botch everything here, uh, who plays her aunt and is just this wry, alcoholic woman who's just depressed as hell but still fighting for for a, a quality life. She's trying to meet men and, and have an amazing life post holocaust which is not easy and and it, it does not go easily for her um but she finds she she has something to invest in in anna and her pursuit for uh these secrets this history that she never knew and these two go on a road trip and and explore this time together and explore the history and
1: you make it sound a little bit more jaunty and fun <laughs> yeah, this, oh, sorry it's not alexander Payne's. um <laughs> well it,
4: the thing is it is i did find it kind of jaunty uh um, you know most joy, holocaust but- are not uh they, they can be quite depressed because they feel like they they need to they they can't tackle like the holocaust is something that is so impossible to fathom how could this happen um that they can't tackle it, like the people involved with those stories can't be real. They have to be representations of this horrible time. Um, and these two people exist after the Holocaust. And that is just an interesting behavior. What has to be on the surface and what has to bubble underneath and how these two people interact and how lives go on. I was just really taken by the, the quiet mood running through this film and and the joy that they find in the, the, the harrowing. Uh, the truths that they discover, the sorrow here, um, I, swells of emotion during watching this movie. You know, I had to watch this movie on Netflix on Jordan Hoffman's recommendation, who got to see it uh, much much earlier than I did. And you know, we talk about it all the time how watching movies on Netflix, watching at home, can be distracting. It can't be as immersive as a theatrical experience. But you know, with the lights down and this kind of bold photography, um, this simple direction and this really nuanced writing, uh, I, I was swept up in this story, something that I can't relate to on, on many levels, I suppose. And I just found these two performances to be so relatable and and so contemporary, even despite being in the 60s. You know, there, there are scenes where they go to dances, uh, kind of community dances in this film that I just found really striking, this kind of the power of music, the power of, of art and how that kind of sways them away, how that can really awaken something in Anna that she had never seen before, being a nun.
3: And it's amazing that <laughs> seeing them go to that dance after they've been to this kind of rural farmhouse, where kind of lay the keys to their family history. And you see this woman in a long skirt, and it's a, you know, it looks exactly what you think of Poland, like rural Poland looking looking like. And then all of a sudden, they're in this Mad Men era with this jazz band and a hotel in the city, and you kind of see the contrast of. Like pre Holocaust history bumping up against the 60s, and how much things are changing in this place, which you also see reflected in the characters. That it's like, like
4: a few mile drive to. Yeah. Uh- sight just, of, of people they knew or people, that, you know, it's it's a horrifying, horrifying experience. Yeah. Um, and the juxtaposition here is, it's so, it, sh- it just shakes you to the bone that this really could have happened, but that that these people are real. And I think that's what I keep going back to with Ida, that these people, the characterizations of these two women feel.
1: Well, it's so- funny that you say that, knowing that, uh, you know, to cast this, this woman who has such an incredible face the title role the director found her in a working in a cafe uh, that was uh, on, like on the ground floor of the apartment he was renting or something oh, wow. like that yeah, really? I mean, I did not know that. yeah she's not non-professional actor and he was taken by her face in, in the context of which work character
4: she as right she doesn't speak too much it's very no it, it's on the it's,
1: there are a few roles that You know, I think normally if you hear the story, you're just you you assume the worst and have a cynical reaction to it. But I think understanding the character um, and looking at her face and and her eyes, which are these sort of black pools of. Anyway, I think mystery. uh, Yeah, sure. It's Um, uh, and the movie is eighty minutes long. So if you have that was that was me my
3: quick thing. Like it's eighty minutes long. It's on Netflix. It feels like you have watched three movies by the end of it, and in a really good way. Like it's gone through so much. Like I kept thinking, like, oh, okay, so that's where the story ends. And then I was like, oh, wait, there's only been forty minutes in this, and it was, and that's very rarely a good thing for me. And I was so amazed by how much story and how much history and you know drama they managed to fit into the short running time i i tried hard to get such
4: devastating moments in this film that come out of nowhere and and it all
0: clicks it all works
4: so it broke my heart
3: i uh, i tried hard to get that on my list too patches you and i are helping each other out a lot here (laughs) it's
0: gonna it's gonna keep going on because we still don't have a ton of overlap going forward (sighs) <sighs> but I like go ahead. Okay, I I don't know what David's number seven pick is, but I'm pretty sure I know what Ehrlich David's number seven pick is. Oh, yeah, right, okay. buddy?
1: Not not your best effort, but uh, uh, all right. Sorry. <laughs> well, uh, my number seven is Richard Iwade's the double, um, which <laughs> what what why the laughter? Oh, no, no! I'm laughing at Dave's yeah, joke. There,
0: see, oh. <laughs> it's worth it. It's a time bomb. I see. Um.
1: Yeah, I I love this movie from the moment I saw it in uh, Toronto in 2013. Um, I I wasn't sure what to make of Ayawade as a filmmaker after seeing Submarine, his first movie, which is sort of a Wes Anderson, early Wes Anderson rip. I wasn't particularly enamored by it. Uh, this shows, you know, it's very much in another direction, but it shows a fully realized stylistic filmmaker who... Is in such command of the world he's creating of his camera. It's so intricately stitched together um, and creates such a coherent, if not f- deeply foreboding, world for his characters to inhabit. Jesse Eisenberg plays uh, a Simon, J- James Simon or Simon James. Doesn't really matter. He plays one of them, and he. I think he's he, James. Right, and and it's very similar to Brazil in the worldview. I, I mean, it's uh, this movie. Is this movie also on Netflix? I don't. Know. I'm just wondering, like, how much time I, I have to waste. Is,
3: I rented spend... it on on-demand a couple okay. months ago. We did um,
0: have a review episode about it. If you yeah. want to just d- go to that.
1: Yeah, it just it seems silly at this point to be uh setting it up, but you know, it's based on the story about Dostoevsky the novella. It's about a guy who meets his double and his double is uh better adjusted and happier in every which way, but the existential crisis here and really what makes the story so interesting is that nobody besides the main character seems to notice that this second person who is identical in every way to uh this this protagonist exists in his the scenario. They they all think uh Jesse Eisenberg's character, or at least the first one of him that we meet, is uh, is losing his mind for thinking that this is anything out of the ordinary. Um, but I just think there's the the coherence of the world that Iwata puts together uh, from from the incredible incredible soundtrack by Andrew Hewitt, uh, the score rather. I mean, there is a great soundtrack to this movie uh, with a lot of older Japanese songs. It sounds a lot. A lot like uh there's the a droll thread line it feels a lot like an aki Karismaki movie it was obviously a heavy influence in the film um Miyawasowwska is so perfectly acidic as uh the love interest in the movie although the interest is not necessarily reciprocated um i I was taken from this movie uh, uh taken by this movie from frame one and uh taken three actually taken three. <laughs> Um, I really, really, really love this and uh I think Richard Ayowate is uh a major talent as a filmmaker. I mean I know that he's been a bit of a celebrity for a while uh in front of the camera, but I think he is he is like he is serious. He means business and I can't wait to see what he does next.
3: Richard Ayawade, star of the watch.
1: Exactly, yeah. <laughs> Who knew?
3: I also love the double. I would, uh, I would stand up for it as well. Although I do feel like when you say how original it is, I did feel like it was so much like Brazil that I wasn't sh- quite so sure that I got a sense of someone as a really original voice. But I don't mind that it's a lot like Brazil because there aren't a lot of movies like that. And he did that version of dy- dystopia really, really well.
0: Fair. <laughs> All right. I mentioned it on the review episode, so I'll point to that. All Boom. right. Excellent. That was our number sevens. My number four movie that I will be purchasing or rewatching multiple times is the Lego movie, which was much better than any February movie had the right to be, and definitely much better than any branded movie had the right to be. I basically give it all the credit to, to Phil Lord, Christopher Miller, who I've loved since they've been doing clone high. They have a very unique sense of humor that they get Bring to properties that otherwise shouldn't work, which is probably why they're so sought after for lesser things. But they did, you know, the twenty two jump street made it work. LEGO movie made it work. They're on a roll. I'm interested to see the next thing that they make better than what it should be uh, in the future.
4: How much sugar coated cereal does it take to enjoy the Lego movie? Because they did not Whoa! just do to, uh,
3: Harsh. I don't I don't I really
4: don't get the, the tremendous outpour of love. For For Lego movie, I mean, I enjoyed it on some level, but it just seems quite schizophrenic, and it I didn't think i I couldn't handle something what? that schizophrenic I energy.
1: about it I mean the energy I agree with, but the the movie is very on on message well, it
4: introduces these fascinating ideas in the beginning and then it just totally. Sidesteps them in favor of something else, and it's it's female characters, and it's and it's it, what what it thinks about the government that's in charge of the society. I mean, it just introduces a lot of good ideas, and it kind of goes straight down the middle
1: and doesn't. It's it certainly has wrap. excuses built into its pocket for why uh, the plot may be that erratic, as you say, it is. Sure, um, as is is uh, the, the subject of a major reveal later in the film. Um, I'm
3: still mad about what it does with its female character. As a classic feminist, I won't let it go and will we'll have no Can you remind me? Oh, I you, mean, nothing. Spoiler, so. spoiler <laughs> alert. Well, basically, <laughs> the movie goes out of its way to say there's such a thing as a special and there's a prophecy and you have to be the person and then, you know, this Elizabeth Banks character, Wildstyle is like, "Oh, it's not me, it's you." And then it says, "Oh, wait, no, there's no such thing. You make your own fate." And you're like, "Oh, okay." So I guess Wildstyle, the person who's competent and who wants to be the special can actually be that. But no, it's the goofy guy and then she just gets to support him. It's total bullshit.
4: And hey, It's true to life,
1: right? Well, yeah, 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 yeah. It's, it's a Lego movie. <laughs> it's I like true the Lego the movie, but that really drew of really a child be who's been raised in a patriarchy, which is uh, <laughs> you know. So. I,
0: I'm I'm down with that being a Gonzalez. <laughs> I know I know a bit about that, but we should about move on. Patriarchy. We should keep it. We should keep it rolling. Yeah, man. Yes. Latin bloods and patriarchy. Let's not get started. Katie, your number six is also later on Patches' list. So let's do a touch and go and uh, talk about The Obvious Child.
3: Oh, I was going to say, speaking of the patriarchy, uh, (laughs) this is a movie about a uh, a medical procedure that is safe, legal, and uh, happens rarely, and sometimes it is your choice to have it. Is a rom-com about an abortion, and I really love a good rom-com, and I also support a woman's right to choose, and the fact that those two things can come together in a movie that's really funny and handles all of those things really lightly made me really happy. It's a shaggy movie. It's not – I mean, David talking about a lot of these movies on his list that are really beautifully directed. I don't think Obvious Child looks like anything really? that special, but it's really fucking funny and really – follows the beats of the rom-com that I adore. I like a movie that kind of sets up, you know, shows you his cards in advance and tells you, like, here's this nice guy, here's how you're going to want the heroine to get together with him and then does it, and then does it really nicely in a way that still has surprises in it and is still funny and still allows you to feel like you've gotten something out of watching these beats getting played out. It's something that so few movies are willing to do anymore and it's got the right cast to do it, it's got the right script to do it, and it, uh, it's a rom-com about abortion, which I cannot overstate how fascinating and important. Yeah, can I tell
1: is. you can I tell you my thing is that like I I am like king abortion. Like I think all babies <laughs> yeah, should be aborted. think have been stated all, differently somehow. All babies uh, should be yeah. aborted. I think um I, I could not support a woman's right to choose more, and I love the idea. Like I, as someone who has no shame in my game when it comes to making incredibly Uh, inappropriate and and deeply offensive jokes. I I certainly don't think that anything like this is off. Limits, um, I love the fact this movie exists and I love the people who made it. It's not funny. It is painfully not funny. She's a stand-up comedian. The first five minutes are funny. The rest of it I laughed a handful of times. Luckily, I comedy think, is
4: subjective, so there. yeah,
1: I, I I don't think that I think it's too. And King I, I Abortion like, says I I love that it follows all kids the romantic comedy. This not funny. I think that it follows the romantic comedy mold. Um, I think that's great. I think I love that it really? is able to normalize abortion. I think that that's the the idea is that it's um, you know it, it's it's the entire thing is not to make it. It's obviously about that, but it's not doesn't necessarily have to be about that. This doesn't need to be the defining episode in this character's life. I love everything that the movie does as far as it's approach to the topic. I just wasn't that entertained. <laughs> and it kills me to say that. Mm. Uh, is this is something that you're dealing with thankfully. I don't
3: think it's the best version of a uh you know, abortion centric rom-com that can be made and hopefully there'll really? be more in the future. And yeah, I mean, I think the I think I mean anything could be funnier. I think it's shaggy in a way that, you know, maybe it could be better made not keep up. up. So. Yeah, we'll. Hey, I we'll like.
0: Be, we'll be back to defend no, uh, the uh, obvious I, child uh, at this point yeah, in yeah. about twenty minutes. So oh, up, <laughs> everybody, everybody
1: up is, uh, takes the coward's way out of this, but
0: David, Every, everybody, David hold on. Take
3: away your right to abortion. That's right.
0: Yeah, mm-hmm. uh, we we'll, you, your comments. You stew on that, and Patch is going to tell me how to accomplish the biggest pour that the earth has ever seen <laughs> uh, while in a car.
4: I believe it's just the biggest pour in the UK. Oh, just um, the UK. Okay, I'm sorry. I'm sorry, I sorry Texas. Talked, I have talked a lot about Locke. Uh, on this show so I will not dwell on it but I have to say that I, I I watched it again recently and everything that Tom Hardy does like the value of speaking the amount of control that he can have everything that can be conveyed with only seeing one character in Stephen Knight's uh, 80 minutes drive from point A to point B movie I, I, I'm swept up in it I, I just think it's such, I, I could not have expected for this scenario to have such dramatic potential and to really catch me off guard, and for the, all these reveals to work, and f- yeah. I, I recently wrote a piece for um, Bright Wall Dark Room, which is my girlfriend's uh, film magazine. Uh, uh, ah, yeah.
1: the truth comes out. Uh, yeah. Yes,
4: it's true, <laughs> and um, uh, and it, it, and that piece ended up being kind of a love letter to the telephone and what we what happens, like why uh, the telephone is great for. Movies, especially the cell phone, something that can happen in the car. And I love what Stephen Knight does, like takes us around the different places in the car and looks out into the street. And it's just a very it's sensory overload while we hear this voice, this disembodied voice. Um, and the phone allows this to it's, – it's such a pressure to not be able to – You know, you can't text, you can't send an email, you have to talk about this, Uh, and you can't look at somebody, you can't be quiet, you can't make gestures, you have to talk, you have to fill space with thoughts, uh, verbalized, it has to be well spoken, and um, Ivan Locke thinks he has all the right answers throughout this movie, and he never does, he's just stumbling, because he can't get away being charming, he can't be the person he is when he is in front of you, he has to be Just the truth, just honesty.
1: We're dancing around the elephant in the room here, which is his accent. Talk to me about his accent. Well, his accent –
4: well, because it's the most soothing accent you could possibly have. (laughs) His voice is such poetry. He could read the phone book as Ivan Locke and it would just be beautiful. But the problem is the words, the truths uh, cannot be digested, cannot be tempered the way that he thinks it can. And that's what's so devastating about the movie and so beautiful. Uh, and I love that it's juxtaposed. You know, we have the fact that he's going to a hospital to watch his like one time lover give birth to a child. He's telling his wife about all this and he's still doing the poor. He still thinks, you know, we can see him in work mode and we can tell that he's approaching this really sensitive, dramatic moment in his life uh, the same way he would the biggest concrete poor in the UK. I just love everything going on in this movie. It swirls. Uh, there, there's not a, a, a fat on this movie. And yeah, I was just taken by
1: it. Locke is great. Locke's fucking great. I, I I'm with wanna, Jeff Wells. Let's stir some elsewhere. shit he though, right it. now, and say that. The Mad Max trailer looks like garbage. Okay. Whoa. Uh, why? Whoa.
3: I don't know. I realize we, we're
2: gonna
0: we, have, we have like a month of, of shows to talk about this. Yeah, we All do right. not have time. <laughs> right. right. be. And
1: because it's a the show.
3: Put your dicks bad.
1: back in your pants. Yeah. Locke is the only. Locke is my Tom Hardy drive somewhere. Uh, movie of choice. Probably
4: (laughs) too, but I disagree with your thoughts
1: on that trailer. But we should move on. What's
0: your vampires hanging out doing nothing movie of choice,
1: David? I don't know. There are so many Uh, candidates. Well, there has to be a best best one.
3: Breaking Dawn Part Two.
1: Yeah, I'm. uh, I'm gonna go with no. My my number six film of this year was Jim Jarmusch's Only Lovers Left Alive. And what's not to love about this movie? Um, this might be my favorite Jim Jarmusch film. Uh, it, It is a I think the the phrase "hangout movie" has been used to death, and then beyond is the land of the undying. But I guess uh, that, that could be appropriate for this. I just love the idea, you know, Tilda Swinton, who is again perfect uh, in this movie against Tom Hiddleston. Huddleston, Hiddleston. Hiddleston. Huddleston? So the problem is that one of the guys I work with now is a British critic whose name is Tom Hiddleston and it is very confusing the kid who
3: uh, plays Jack in Into the Woods is named Huddlestone so don't get too uh, excited about calling Tom Hiddleston that
1: um so yeah so they are they're vampires but they're essentially at the they're, they're very bored with being alive um but it, what really the movie is about is is just sort of the interaction of culture reaching the end of culture how do you how do you stoke your imagination how do you find the in in what feels like the perpetual end times of, of pop culture and I think that we can all relate to this on a daily basis like when watching the Mad Max trailer yeah it's like how do you how Fuck do you <laughs> how, how do you uh, find those reserves to keep going and I I Again, Mia Wasikowska shows up and <laughs> uh, is phenomenal. She's the the female Brady Corbett in terms of... Uh, I'm
4: starting to sense a trend with Mia Wasikowska and Emily Browning. I don't know. Well, if I got to tell you, uh,
1: um, Maps of the Stars will not be making it to my list in 2015. Uh, I've already seen 10 movies that I prefer to wait for next year. So, yes. um, dis Cronenberg diss. But... Uh, yeah, I, I think we all, at least maybe maybe not Dave, but the rest of us, I'm sure, saw this movie. Uh, it's just I've it, not it, seen it. It, it also, in oh you haven't seen yet. it? Wow! No, I, think way, I,
3: I didn't get a screener. I don't. I got to figure also, it out. I'm also a screener. So
1: no, I don't much, like. Literally, <laughs> is it available
3: anywhere? I don't know where to see it.
1: Um, but I think also in, and uh, I love uh, maybe more than I should when movies do this when movies that are made by bonafide auteurs serve as um, these sort of uh, Codex isn't the right word, but hey, they, like the dictionary definition is just wrong, but they serve as um, sort of the platonic ideal of a Jarmusch film here in a way that the Grand Budapest Hotel is really um, sort of a meta text about Wes Anderson movies. I think this is really your one-stop shop for Jarmusch, which makes it as most accessible, but it all, not necessarily as shallowest. I think, if, if anything, um, there are two decades plus, three decades of, of ideas swirling around here that are meant to reflect – Almost that many millennia and uh, it just works so perfectly into its last uh, sort of tongue in cheek but fangs out uh, final shot. And uh, this is one of those movies that once Dave sees, I think might make it onto his list of things that he sees and then resees. sees
0: well, I was gonna try to help Katie out and find where she could watch <laughs> Only Lovers Left Alive, and I sadly learned it has been pirated and put streaming somewhere. So, ah, when hot I hot legally hot. find a way to do Only Lovers Left Alive, I'm sure. Isn't but, it also
1: out on Blu-ray? It should I don't be. Know what
3: it is, I like honestly. When I was putting together top fives, I was trying to figure out how to see Only Lovers Left Alive, and I have yet to figure out how. I think I just um, it's just it's just in that terrible window where it's, it's gone. It's on
1: DVD there's oh, it currently is? Okay. one left in stock at Amazon, so hurry up okay. and uh, <laughs> tragically and, uh, it does not seem available on Blu-ray so it, but there, are, no. there are Blu-ray rips of it on the internet, I believe so Guys, it must be available I'm not somewhere Korea.
3: I don't hack things yeah. well, I'm,
1: not, I'm not encouraging you to do this I'm just saying that it exists elsewhere in the world which means that you could probably import it because Blu-rays are a little bit less strictly region encoded than DVDs uh, if you really want to make the effort, but I think it's also on like Netflix. It's not on Netflix, incident, really? It's not oh, yet. Netflix. No. Um, I had right. a uh, this. This. Uh, I'm not a chronic rewatcher with new movies, but this was another film that I had a screener of earlier this year. Um, it was a web thing. It expired, Katie. I'm sorry, but <laughs> I, I watched it um, maybe like seven or eight times as well. Like not unlike uh, God help the girl. Um and I as soon as it was gone and the link died, I, I missed it terribly. So
0: Oh, well we've reached our halfway point, meaning number fives. I'm going to need to refill on Eggnog, and when I come back, I will have oh been God. made redundant and I, I will want have to tell Nog. you guys. Would you let, stop stepping on my segue. It was so good. I'm gonna be made redundant and I'm gonna have to argue for my place on this podcast. Katie, what's your number five?
3: Oh shit. I thought you were literally taking a break for eggnog. Oh, here's a, my number five. It has nothing to do with eggnog. It's Two Days, One Night, which is a movie that seems to be about basically nothing. It's a woman played by Marion Cotillard walking around to the homes of her coworkers, asking for them to let her keep her job. It's a setup that I don't know how Belgian companies works, but it seems like it wouldn't happen in real life, where they're basically given the option to fire her or get to get a bonus, and they vote in this, favor. Sorry, go on.
1: I think this uh, is something that there is precedent for but there's okay. also the fact that you know Dardan brothers films as socially social realist as they appear to be uh, always have a sort of fabulistic streak beneath them and so i without understanding how these companies work i still just went with it on those grounds
3: yeah i absolutely did too i mean it's just the kind of thing when you say it out loud people can be like wait a second and be like you know what just go with it because it's this movie that becomes more and more compelling the more you think it's going to be repetitive where she's going from house to house and you know in some ways having the same conversation she says the same thing like there was a vote i thought it was rigged i talked to this woman here's who's going to vote for me i want you to let me keep my job but you get these glimpses into these lives of these people and not just that they're just diverse and interesting, but that you see how Marion Cotillard's performance changes with them. And you get to see what kind of working class Belgian life is like. And every time she reinteracts with her husband, who just seems like the most patient man on the planet, um, you get more about their relationship. And kind of, I mean, this is something it's just a Darden brothers, you know, this is not new for the Darden brothers, but I thought the way that this movie was set up as kind of a quest almost was such a fascinating, surprisingly tense structure. And then it's got this really great Marion Cotillard performance at the center of it, where she's kind of on the verge of falling apart the entire time. But at the same time has this ability to go do something that I don't think I could do to have to go ask all of my coworkers to let me, keep my job. It's a there's a tension in the character and you don't really know if she's going to be able to pull it off and if she, her husband's going to get fed up after a while that I thought made a really fascinating surprisingly and I don't want to say tense but you know I watched this movie kind of with an eyebrow raised cuz I don't know how much I'm be able to pay attention on a screener to a Belgian movie about someone trying to keep their job but I was really gripped by it.
4: Be strong, Katie. Ignore your surroundings. I know. Throw your cat out a
0: window. Enjoy this film.
3: (laughs) No, I need the cat for the Babadook so I can survive it.
0: Babadook. Miles is your Babadook. Exactly. That's that's going to be your slow realization. He's he's all that can keep me safe. You're like, oh, God, I love you, but could you stop knocking stuff over? Oh, (laughs) what's this book doing here? (laughs) Patches. No one should ever have to intro this movie. This might be the only time it's ever done. Patches, what's your number five film?
4: (laughs) That's true. Uh, My number five film is something I have discussed on the podcast before. It is called River of Fundament. Uh, It's Matthew Barney's six-hour film about life, about death, about technology, about America, about... No, a lot of poop and Norman Mailer swimming through that poop. Um, yeah, this was just you know I was talking. I'm, I'm mentioning Jordan Hoffman a lot on this podcast, mostly because I just my life is intertwined with him. Um, well, we were talking about doing our top tens, and he's like, if you have seen River Fundament and it is not on your top ten, then you are shit. Your list is shit. And um, it was not on his list. (laughs) So fuck him. And uh, it is on my list because it blew me away. I mean, I don't go to the theater that often and have like transcendent religious experiences where I'm just so blown away with what I'm seeing. Like, how did this happen? How can Matthew Barney make an epically scaled film that involves Egyptian mythology and resurrection and Rivers of poop, like who gave him the money to build this magnificent piece of art um, and be so extreme? And, you know, there's musical dance sequences, rap and and like West Side Story, big dances. And then there's melting of cars and in ritualistic fashion, you know, at six hours, you'd think. It's going to be such a slog. It's going to be so indulgent. It's going to. It won't make us like a sense, but it really is three chapters of this this one character's life. This is a well written uh, piece piece of of imagery and and exploration of ideas. I was really blown away by it. I don't know if anyone will ever see it or if we'll get out there, I think it'll continue to tour around the world. So if it ever crosses your path, I would highly recommend catching the River of Fundament. But, um, I mean, and it has really good performances too. There's obviously extremes here. There's there's uh, a, a naked man wrapping his Pooh in a gold foil and flushing it down into the River Fundament and growing into a new man who is actually Norman Mailer's grandson who will later cut open an actual cow and and go inside of it. Um, That stuff does happen. But then there's Paul Giamatti and Elaine Stritch delivering like elegant monologues and waxing poetic on Egyptian myth. Uh, And and, and then uh, there's Maggie Gyllenhaal Uh, wandering around a house full of naked people fucking each other in different poses. Like, it's so weird, and yet it all does really make sense. And that is what's extraordinary, kind of piecing this mosaic together um, in the most cinematic fashion possible. And, you know, I had to sit through Transformers, Age of Extinction this year, which is three and a half hours or whatever, eight days long, and it doesn't make a lick of sense. Not one beat in that movie. it's actually
1: still going. Yeah, it's... uh... (laughs) I'm we actually – this is a dream that I'm having during Age of Extinction. <laughs> Optimus is still talking about, well, <laughs> the
4: things No Yo, <laughs> Uh <laughs> Sent to the refundment. What do uh, I care? I'm
1: going to live forever. I'm a giant truck. <laughs> but how can a beat so
4: long have no substance whatsoever, not have one authentic beat and yet – Matthew Barney is is pushing our buttons by making movies about rivers of poop, and and it all makes such sense. It's so relatable. It's so uh, universal. I, I adore River Fundament, and it is artsy fartsy nonsense, extra fartsy. And
0: yeah. <laughs> yeah, oh man. Well, I guess the question of authenticity is at the core of David's number five pick. Thanks for using that word, patches. Otherwise, I would have had to go from Fundament. I. Uh... I,
1: I'm, I'm struggling here, Dave. What? Well, no, uh, you, you want me to give it to you again? I, I mean, I I know what the movie is, but I'm still the authenticity. Like, I get it. Like the I questions. could lob
0: it to you in a way that uh, makes you seem worse. King okay. Abortion couldn't
1: solve this movie. <laughs> David's number five pick. King Abortion. <laughs> 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 uh, um, uh, my number five is David Fincher's trash masterpiece, Gone Girl. Uh, which I think really, if any movie this year beyond boyhood uh, has been talked to death, it's probably this one. Nothing, I think, as far as a think piece per minute ratio, Gone Girl must be the number one film of the year. Um, but uh, Night at the Museum has only been in theaters for a few days, so <laughs> let's not quite close the books on that yet. Did you but,
3: even see The Hobbit, David?
1: I did see The Hobbit, yeah. Oh, okay, no. um. The uh, yeah, I, I really don't know what more to say about Gone Girl at this point. I wrote a review that I still stand behind that's on Badass Digest, uh, out of the New York Film Festival. I think that the, what's really amazing to me about this movie is that for the second consecutive film, uh, David Fincher has taken a really trashy uh, novel that I think was barely worth the pages it was printed on and found within it, uh, it really flattered the material by finding within it reservoirs of. of I thought
4: you hadn't Meaning, read
1: this. And, movie. Uh, I read. I read about half of it after seeing the movie, <laughs> and that was enough. I mean, like, so you I were calling
4: it trash before reading it, and now that you've read half of it, it's extra trashy. It's super trash.
1: It's it's super trash. Um, <laughs> you know, I, I think Julian Flynn has a, a great way of plotting, great way of telling a story, but I don't think that makes. Uh, the writing particularly revelatory in any way uh but david fincher's cinema is i mean this movie is accomplishing i I think there's also just for the story um you know there's just something about the performative element that cinema brings to it that really can't be found on the page that is really intrinsic to the story and the relationship between nick and nora i always want to call her nick and whatever the hell her name is Amy. amy amazing amy right um that as the movie goes on is so crucial uh and i think that it's something that david fincher is very attuned to but i think that movies inherently uh add to this story and the fact that um ben affleck his side dick and uh what's her face rosamund pike are all so perfect in their roles um is it doesn't hurt i think she is just phenomenal in this, in this movie uh, and I think it really it's dark it's unafraid to say some cynical things but really have the conviction to stand behind them and find that while they may still ultimately be cynical the fact that they're true is uh softens the blow and and I think um is comforting in its own backwards way and and I think uh it's I just I thought this is a beautiful movie. Ultimately, in some respects, uh, as pulpy as it as it is in the process to getting there. Um, if David Fincher comes out and announces that his next movie is going to be another adaptation of uh whatever the the goldfinch or i don't know i don't I hope know what it's the,
3: another jack, i hope it's a jack reacher movie
1: yeah a jack reacher movie i will still be like whatever and <laughs> completely uh uninterested until i sit down in the theater and, and the lights go down um but i i think that he's done maybe what he needs to do in turning trashy novels into into mm-hmm. masterpieces of film form, but uh, <laughs> uh, I mean, really, I, I think this is a better film than The Girl with the Dragon Tattoo, but The Girl with the Dragon Tattoo the movie is such a quantum leap up from uh, Joe Nesbo's novel and certainly... The, nope, uh, nope,
3: Stieg Larson's novel. Yeah,
1: yeah. Oh, uh, who's Joe Nesbo? He's alive.
3: Another... Right. Joe Nesbo, Steve, I think, is alive and it's another
1: Scandinavian. the um, writer. That, yeah, I mean, but these... Uh, and, and he knows his palette better than I do. He knows what paints he, he can use to uh, make things that are of interest to him and it's history has proven that the things that are interesting to him tend to be interesting to me and the rest of us so shine on you crazy diamond david fincher
0: <laughs> yeah i'm with you big david fincher fan enjoyed god girl not on the things i'm gonna rewatch, though i didn't re-watch girl with the dragon tattoo actually until this year which is why god why why i think it's a really interesting get- Movie for a lot of reasons that we could talk about in some other episode okay, yeah. that isn't going to be like fifteen hours long. If we're gonna do <laughs> River of Fundament, s- okay? Yeah, this, this is-, is the podcast of Fundament. Here we go. Dave's uh, third film that he is going to rewatch and actually pay money for Beyond from 2014 is Godzilla because that movie yeah. was made for a media that has chapter breaks. Because who cares about what Aaron Jones is doing? He gets on the train, and then the missile, and then the other thing you want to watch happens, and then he's in the city, and the other <laughs> thing you want to watch happens. It, I, it was good as a movie as a whole, but now that I don't need to see it as a whole, it is fantastic as a movie, as pieces of monster fights. So, boom. Godzilla. People are we
4: high for liking that movie.
0: Yeah. I mean, I don't know how, how that happened. How were we in have. the
4: minority?
3: Oh, uh, speaking sorry, of being a big the minority, for all of oh god,
0: Katie, your number
1: four pick. Oh, uh, no one should oh, ever introduce me wait. this way. I'm so Can I worried. guess what it is? Yes, the please do. Is it Selma? It, it is Selma. Yay!
3: <laughs> Yay! <laughs> what Five what points for David. Although he, I don't think he's happy that it's on my list at all. No, but anyway, yeah, my, Selma was
1: on my top twenty-five.
3: All right, there we go. Um, Selma. It's a movie that I walked out of, kind of thinking, like, all right, it works. It's it's effective. It's not like the best thing I've ever seen. I still think there are moments of the movie that ring a little strange, which is when there's a scene between LBJ and J. Edgar Hoover in uh, the White House, and LBJ says, I know J. Edgar, but... And there's things like that that you can't avoid. Also,
1: maybe the most embarrassing closing credits to end agreement. Oh,
3: right. (laughs) Well, we can argue about that, but I'm not going to spoil it. Yeah, we'll
1: probably review this. Yeah, we'll
3: we'll talk about some in more detail later on, but I think it's really beautifully filmed. I think it's got a really stunning... Uh, lead performance from David Oyelowo and I think it does this miraculous thing with the biopic which is, you know, something the director has said a lot herself is that it makes it about the people around him and especially because the civil rights movement was so much a movement of people and there's these myths that grew up around it that it was just individuals like Rosa Parks was just a woman who wanted to sit down on the bus and that Martin Luther King was just a man who was, you know, driven by God to do this and it ignores the amount of organizing and, you know, the role of groups like the NAACP in making this kind of thing happen and Selma is so thoughtful about that and i think it's best scenes are scenes where it's either you know king with his advisors kind of sitting in a church or you know fighting about what to do where there's you know see where malcolm x shows up and kind of just makes this compromise kind of recognizing that like there's he has a role and king has a role in the public perception and they have to basically work together to accomplish what they want even if it makes one of one or both of them look worse in the public or um His his phone conversations with LBJ to figure out what they're going to do there. There's all this machinations that went into that, not just this like very high minded sense that people deserve equal rights, which, you know, was what was driving all of it. And I think that is so fascinating, but also not dry. It makes it so much about the people like, the you know, the woman who lived in Selma who welcomed King and his people into her house and gave them fried chicken. You know, they all sat down for this greasy southern Sunday afternoon meal. Um, the feeling of that is what I really liked about Selma in a year where there's been a bunch of biopics that I was not that interested in. I, see, thought Selma I don't had think so that point Selma is, that is a
1: biopic at all. I mean, obviously. Well,
3: I'm using that term to kind of distinguish it from the regular biopic. I think yeah. you would agree with me that it's more about. movement not about yeah absolutely
1: it feels like a francesco rossi film or something that it's very much about like uh community organizing Mm -hmm. uh which is a phrase that republicans tried to turn into pejorative and yeah 2012 uh but um uh yeah i I mean i think everything that katie said except for the the, her defense of the common song over the end credits i mean it's not even the song it's it's like the graphics that they they use literally not at all (laughs) Uh, anyway, it's just very jarring at the end of the movie. But the, speaking of jarring, the scene that opened – one of the scenes that opens this film in which uh, – in Alabama with the school kids walking downstairs. Um, really – might- yeah. Uh, well, I'm trying to leave it fake. Not for mm-hmm. spoilers' sake but just because I'm talking about how much of a jolt it imparted with me and I think that audiences deserve to have that moment for themselves. But it was so – I mean it, it so shocks you into the reality of what this means. I mean black, white, any whatever uh, – you know, strife. You are of uh, an audience member coming into this. You're you're immediately jolted into the the present tense of what's happening in that movie. Um, uh,
4: I have some very serious thoughts, and some
0: contradictory
4: to what Katie is saying. But mm. I think I will save them for our eventual review that's, of this film.
0: That's that's a, that's probably a good idea because. <laughs> Much like the main character of your number four pick, I'm way too high right now to understand anything you're saying. <laughs> wow, I hope that's true.
4: Is it
3: the interview? Is it the interview?
0: <laughs> oh, God, I'm, I'm not that incendiary. No,
4: I, I'm going to go with Inherent Vice, which I believe appears on other people's lists. If I,
0: It will later correctly. on, yes.
4: Um. Yeah, so maybe I won't touch on it too much now because I I, I have to be honest. Like, I walked out of Inherent Vice after our, our New York Film Festival screening feeling unsure about... What I had just kind of experienced, and I had a similar reaction to the master, where I wasn't really sure if I if I liked the movie, whatever that means. I, I mean, I, I I was hit by it; it smacked me up. Um, but I just didn't know if I really enjoyed it, where it was that successful. And I kind of felt the same way after Inherent Vice, and uh, then uh, maybe two hours later, I started feeling like high on it, if you will, <laughs> uh, pun intended. But. Um, yeah, this there's just so much to soak up. I mean, it was interesting to hear Paul Thomas Anderson talk about, um, you know, the long goodbye and not really understanding these kind of um, groovy, uh, amorphous, blurry mysteries, these hazy. Dramas uh, or, or genre bending experiences to call this a drama, to call it a comedy. I don't know what you call inherent vice. There's just so much to feel and to, to glide through in this movie. So much character and, and so much, um, I mean, it, there is a lot of political commentary, but for the life of me, I don't know right now if I could sit down and describe all of the beats that happen in this movie and the actual case that Joaquin Phoenix's uh, Larry Doc Sportello is, is solving here there's a murder in play there's a missing guy uh, you know and his and his ex-girlfriend has come back uh, looking for his help from there it, it takes a lot of twists and turns and it's supposed to feel um kind of offbeat off guilter uh and I definitely felt that way and we'll we'll talk about it more in a second um but I just love feeling this movie more than trying to follow all its uh plot points or something like that it just it just I don't know. It's, a, it's an experience. It's a real experience. And I have a tough time talking about it because I want to see it again. And I want to feel that high again. It really is – I got under my skin.
3: I feel very certain I need to rewatch Inherent Vice again because I had a similar experience as the master. But I haven't been able to see it a second time. So I'm still super unsure about it. And it's such the
4: opposite of the master. Like the master is all about – finesse language or someone who can't communicate and someone who is proficient in communication just butting heads. It feels like an acting exercise and this one feels like the complete opposite. You know, I don't want to be the guy who calls something a poem – but uh, you
3: are that guy. That but
4: is. you
1: somehow <laughs> always
4: that guy. <laughs> <laughs> I am actually never that guy. Just for the record, I what mm-hmm. was a tree of life. Tree was the of life. Only you time. called a
1: movie a poem. You called fucking something a movie a poem in this episode like five minutes ago. <laughs> no, I didn't. You, you, did, say made, something you, you, you did. You did. You did. Someone else made
4: fun of me for calling it a thing. Oh poem. my god. I, I don't call things poems. That's bullshit.
0: Moving on. <laughs> <laughs> well. I, so, I, I, I guess oh man this is going to be another hard one. I'm not I'm, I got it. the memory sometimes is the reality patches in the poem. No, that's way too difficult. David, explain to us why your number 4 pick is the nymphomaniac parts. Ooh, that sounds uh, like a pun.
3: It does. Uh, my
1: my number four pick is the year's most underrated film is uh, Lars von Trier's *Nymphomaniac*, which uh, is not at all dissimilar from what I was talking about with *Only Lovers Left Alive* and alluding to with *The Grand Budapest Hotel* is a sort of uh, unifying statement for a filmmaker. I wrote to this at great uh, to this uh, point at great length on the *Dissolve* um, in an article called, I believe, "The Infinite Loneliness of Lars von Trier," which uh, I think you can. Just for your SEO or, or Googling pur- purposes, uh, you don't need to worry too much about the title. But uh, Nymphomaniac is Lars von Trier's epic. It is uh, his magnum opus by sheer length alone. Um, although, length. You said length. Yes. Uh, as far as uh, it being, where it stacks in his filmography, it faces some stiff, Katie, <laughs> some stiff <laughs> competition. Uh, Thank you. But, I mean, I... I think this movie was a lot to handle for some people. There is uh, a very different tone of it in the second movie. And I th- in the second part, I think people that even those who were on board with the first part were thrown for a bit of a loop in the second. Um, but I really can't lay out my thoughts about this movie uh, any better uh, than I did in in that article, which is not to say that I did it very well there, but just to put the ceiling on my ability to do so. But the uh, I, I think that this story, Charlotte Gainsbourg and... Uh, the actress whose name I can't remember who plays the younger version Stacey of the character. Daisy Martin. Martin, yeah, are, are just so fearless and self-possessed um, with the performances. I think that there's always... I just think Lars von Trier's understanding of, of sex, sex as a communicative expression and mechanism and what people hope to achieve from it, what people get from it, and, and how it ultimately becomes not about sex at all because it is so entwined with the sort of human experience beyond it um, is so true. I think... You know, don't even get me started on people who think that the last beat of the movie throws it under the bus because uh, I just think that they have not been paying sufficient attention. How is that
4: possible that anyone can watch know. these two films and feel that way? I don't There, are it's just speaking they're, they're to all there. of sexual they're experience.
1: <laughs> <laughs> um, but I, I – man, I mean I, I, I was really just bowled over by this movie. I think that there are individual episodes in it which even people who hate the movie, I would have to imagine – have to appreciate to some degree Uma Thurman's one scene performance as Mrs. H in yep. Chapter Three is just like Best Supporting Actress worthy mm. if if were this film uh, eligible. Uh, Of course, she would still get recognition because it's called Nymphomaniac. It's by Lars von Trier. But um, uh, the Chapter 5, the Little Oregon School, where he is cutting together um, this polyphony of uh, sexual experiences for Joe is just so masterful. It's so great. Um, And the stuff in the back half as well, her (laughs) affair with uh, the way that he revisits the older material. I mean, it's a lot of fan service, but it it actually heightens your appreciation.
3: I mean, it, I love it that it you're is. using fan service in the context of this. Well, you
1: know, by the time that he is revisiting Antichrist to the point where they are having a similar episode of a kid, um, an, un, an unattended kid plunging to his death off the balcony because his parents are having sex. I mean, it's uh, it, it. These are obvious broad nods to uh, Lawrence of filmography. But I I just I love you have to to appreciate this movie you have to be on board with Stellan Skarsgård's character as sort of the uh, mansplainer in chief and
4: uh, he is Socratic dialoguer yeah
1: no it's a lot of mansplaining Uh, he no he's a total mansplainer and I think the movie gives him proper comeuppance for that Uh, but. Man, I, I, loved, I loved everything about this. Um, I'm a huge Lars von Trier fan, so I'm not entirely surprised that I feel that way. Um, and mileage will certainly vary. But uh, Nymphomaniac, which I believe is on Netflix, is, uh, I think, one of the defining films of this year. And given everything Lars von Trier keeps saying about going sober, God forbid, <laughs> uh, this could be the last slice of true von Trier. And it's hard to see where he goes from here, so who knows, yeah. but... If anyone has always uh, had a knack for upending expectations, it's Lars von Trier.
0: The last slice of true von Trier. Anyway, we're going to move into our uh, top threes now. Miss Rich is going to divert from the rest of the boys a little bit. Uh, your number three film is something that we reviewed recently on the podcast. That's my you best know, segue out of Nymphomaniac. I'm sorry. I didn't even want to try.
3: I've been told that uh, my defenses against patches on this movie were much appreciated. Oh, my God.
1: Number three?
3: Uh, Yeah, Wild is really good.
1: <laughs> I, this, I, this you is haven't the movie. seen it. It's the one this that is you, the, I knew. This is exactly. Yeah, this is the movie that I chose not to see because Jean-Marc Vallée can fucking... Yeah. I know go back, go
3: back. I had no interest in Dallas <laughs> Buyers Club. I mean, I watched Dallas Buyers Club. Just I hated that movie. At I all, I hated
1: Dallas Buyers Club.
3: I, I mean, I think Wild is reasonably well directed, but I think the strings of Wild are in its screenplay, which is written by Nick Hornby and is elliptical in a way that is really thoughtful and really taps into both the thought process of someone who's by themselves and is kind of has nothing better to do than to think about all the ways they fucked up their lives and really good with the emotional beats of it and kind of takes you on an emotional story of someone who most of the things that have happened in her life have happened before we meet her on this hike. Uh, and it's got a great performance from Reese Witherspoon. It's got a great performance from Laura Dern. It's got really beautiful cinematography. I'm not really sure why no one's really? talking about how beautiful. Yeah, I know. We talked no. about this. I still don't understand what you mean about this movie feeling too closed in. I think it does a really nice job of putting this one woman in the context of the nature around her.
4: It's just like me grabbing the high-end Sony handy cam and going out and following Reese Witherspoon Been walking around the forest. It doesn't look like anything. Yeah, but the difference between
1: you and Jean-Marc (laughs) Valet is that he did it, Batches. That's true. He
4: accomplishes.
3: He things. climbed that mountain. Um, yeah, I thought Wild was really effective. Really made me feel a lot. Really carried me along in the story. That I mean, I hadn't read the book. I don't have any previous previous attachment to it. But I was really taken by the way that the story was told. A story that I kind of felt like I knew the ending of. And I think I felt like David. Like I felt like, oh, this guy made Dallas Buyers Club is going to be this really you know trite, straightforward movie about someone who finds themselves on a hike. And I got a lot more out of it in the way that it deals with how complicated it is to be a woman alone in the world and how complicated it is to be a woman who's kind of made a bunch of mistakes. And it's really upfront about the ways that Cheryl Strayed kind of threw away a life that was pretty good, including a husband who she seems legitimately sad to divorce and watches her kind of rebuild herself in a way that's really not overly sentimental and doesn't make too much out of moments. You know, doesn't have some like great revelation on a mountaintop. It builds slowly until you get to the end of it. And you kind of see where she's going to emerge as a whole person from this. I liked Watt a lot. I wish it was. Uh, I don't know. I don't. I can't quite figure out why it hasn't tracked in the Oscar race yet. Because I feel like it would have done, even if you if you were someone like Patches who doesn't like it that much. It feels like an Oscary movie, and I'm gonna I'm gonna be figuring that out. Over it'll the next
1: find thing. it'll find an audience. I
4: I People think like the book. David clear, needs to see it before he can.
1: Really Dave sing. and yeah. I. Dave and I need to see this movie and yes. settle, uh, and settle this once and for all. Yeah.
0: I saw Only the,
3: men yeah. can tell me what I think about this movie. I saw the
0: Reese Witherspoon Africans movie. Didn't I pay my Reese Witherspoon you tax this year?
3: I did not see I that. I went to the
0: premiere of that.
3: Oh, man. That is
0: also on an episode of previous Fighting in the War David, or Dave liked it. I did like it. It was good. I'm just saying, you pay your Reese Witherspoon tax. It's they not a witherspoon I saw it Inherit Vice. She's in that. Come
3: on. E Surgeon's. Easy, so
0: easy. Oh, resurgence! That's right that's hilarious. You. All right, now <laughs> that's that's why I don't get I don't get hired at Fanny Fair. <laughs> Patches, you're number three. We've already talked about, but maybe someone besides King Abortion should talk about it. Well, one.
1: Right. Child we need that is- nickname. We need that nickname to be a uh, episode isolated. <laughs>
4: <laughs> <laughs> Obvious Child is hysterical, David. I really don't understand what you're talking about, and this must be just a taste thing. I really. And I wasn't a huge Jenny Slate fan from, like, Saturday Night Live or her stand-up. I just saw this woman get up on stage and just start talking shit and being really crude, and I, I, I loved it. Um, And I thought it really spoke to the vulnerabilities that she'd show later in the film. Like, she is a great actress. She can be normal, and she can be off the cuff, and she uses humor to disguise uh, her her terror, you know, she's so scared of getting the abortion. This isn't a comfortable situation for her and that's what I love about this. It f- feels very realistic and, and emotional by the end. Totally. Um, I, I I, one of my favorite scenes in the movie is when she crawls in bed with her mom and mm-hmm. she has this discussion about like her mom got an abortion or and, and talking about just being women and being real people and, and opening up about that and how opening up on stage is not necessarily the same thing even though I'm laughing my ass off when she
1: does it. It sounds yeah, like I, I, it, well it's, I it's, think yeah. I agree with everything Pat just said. I mean I just I don't think the movie's very funny. Uh right, but then you're in the I
4: mean, comedy. That's it's it's yeah.
1: I, I don't I don't uh but I, I don't like, think it's or a bad face. Hysterical. I, I know, but I still think it's a very it's a good movie. I think its own way, it's a very important movie. I think that uh Gillian Jacobs and uh Robespierre. Gillian R- Robespierre. I'm community. not I'm not doing good with names tonight all right it's been a <laughs> rough week for me but uh um Gillian Robespierre is a very talented I think has a very bright future ahead of her I think that she just in speaking to her because uh, I interviewed her for something I was like She's hilarious, and and I think that she uh, will only become a better and better filmmaker. Jenny Slade is great. Uh, I think so much of this movie works so well. I'm so glad that it exists. I just didn't think it was very funny. There are worse things in the world.
4: Yeah, and I, really, I would have to like go to bat for J- Jillian's direction in this film, which Katie was kind of, I guess, underwhelmed by, or just it's satisfied. I, I don't sure, know. Sure, that was a lot what I, said, of, I guess. You know, making moments work like where they actually play the Paul Simon song, Obvious Child, they're dancing around. That's just like – so full of life, like they're just on the right note of, of being drunk and being in each other's company and lighting up. I love all of that. Um, and, and there's just, you know, scenes like where she's standing across from her ex-boyfriend's house waiting for her to come out, just setting up these scenes and making them play both for comedy and for an emotional arc, really successful. And, uh, you know, we see a lot of kind of micro-budgeted movies that play at Sundance that are just shot uh and i think there's a lot of artfulness to what obvious child does sure. yeah all right i i'm not Treasure. gonna say there's
3: no artfulness to it so. everyone
0: agrees ask, they, you should see it that's, the, that's what yeah. it sounds like
3: La- i'm really looking night. forward to david going to sundance and this being like one of the better movies that comes out of sundance <laughs> oh
1: yeah you're looking forward to that i'm yes not. i'm so oh, excited fall by, fall by fall the end fall. of sundance I, i'm gonna be like I swear to God, you'd um, be fucking obvious. Child, play Mad please, Max. Remote, please!
4: So you'll be very excited. No, I, I. The one thing I wanted to mention before we wrapped up talking about Obvious Child was that the other night I um, was recommending movies to a family friend at a Christmas party, and uh, I, I said, you've "Gotta see Obvious Child." You know, it's a very funny movie. It's very touching about abortion, so it's kind of taboo, but it like goes there, and it's very empowering to women. And this woman's like, "I'm a Catholic." <laughs>
0: And Did you was, tell her dogs can go to heaven now? Which <laughs> she blows my mind because it seems like that has a lot of consequences. Yeah, so that was awkward, and then and then the conversation
4: ended. It was over. Oh and I'm like, man, it's, Wait, who is like a Woody Allen movie? To? This
3: is amazing. <laughs>
4: just this was just a, a, a yeah. family friend of mine. And yeah. She's like, I'm Catholic. I, I don't do that. And I'm like, I, I, wow. I
1: can't be in conversations about abortion. I'm sorry. Cannot even talk about abortion. This yeah. is like shush, abortion over here. Sh- Sh- classic Sh-mortion?
3: city slicker leaves the city and talks about abortion when. He's not supposed
0: to <laughs> oh well once again I have to segue into under the skin from some weird thing so well, where
1: where do <laughs> abortions take place you know I
0: <laughs> bit, oh, so, I mean technically David saved me I been talk about this poem film you know what that is actually one of the movies I saw and if I were to make like a a top a top 10 overall this would be in my top three as well. It's uh, just easily moody and awesome, and I love that they adapted a book, but didn't. I, I think that was really brave, uh, in terms of.
1: I had
3: uh, no idea it was based on a book.
1: Yeah. Oh, yeah. It's based on a book that uh, even if you read, I think you would be hard pressed to to know that it was based on. Um, but I feel, uh, I feel at this point, it's December. Saw this movie uh, in September of last year. We talked about it on the show in April. Uh, I feel comfortable just leaving it at what, what Dave said. Um, I don't think I have any startling new insights over the past few months other than the fact that I've revisited the movie a couple of times and uh, it more than holds up. And and it's been gratifying to see the waves of uh, praise for it. And it's very strange. I mean, it, it's very strange. Is this one of those movies that's not eligible for the Oscars? No, I think is it is. Something? It is. It's just. It's like you know. It's coming close. Stop in, assuming that everything you like can't. Possibly. I know. I know. <laughs> uh, this isn't nominated because I'm uh, just. Well, *Nymphomaniac* is is truly ineligible. Um, but uh, as is the *Babadook*. Uh, but under the skin, it's it's coming close in so many of these critic circles. Scarlett Johansson, it's it's second to *Boyhood* in a number of these polls. Scarlett Johansson has won the best actress awards, um, and yet. Because of its nature, because of its uh, obtuseness and whatnot, it's just not even remotely in the Oscar conversation. And so, I'm just going to stop myself there because the last thing this podcast needs is another excuse for me to reach out of the rail topic of hands and rail yeah. the Oscars. So, like, it's just like, come on, man! It's it's so cool to see this movie be so widely loved and, and talked about at this time of year, and yet for it to be absent from the the big parade is just a uh, Stupid. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Anyway, (laughs) pop. And uh, in ten years, we'll see whatever Jonathan Glazer does next.
0: Yeah, going to be a sweet ride. All right, Dave's number two film of the top five that he is going to. Pay money to rewatch multiple times. This one is the Grand Budapest Hotel by Wes Anderson. Uh, it falls out of my other lists on their movies on this list because it's not really an action movie, but it's a nesting doll that each sequence is as enjoyable as the whole. That sort of has this great. Uh, historic darkness just like running through it if you digest it. But that doesn't mean that you can't just show Harvey Keitel escaping to jail to your parents to convince them that they have to watch it later on down the line. And I think I will with Grand Budapest Hotel. Much like Fantastic Mr. Fox, it's a Wes Anderson film that is great as a whole, but in little pieces is just as enjoyable. So Grand Budapest Hotel is worth lots for me. And we're going to be talking about that a lot more. So let's keep rolling. Woohoo! To Katie's number two film that it talks, it's a Linklater film, which is usually at the Wait, top of David's, David's list.
3: Wait, am I the only person who's going to talk about Boyhood? You are. Holy shit, that is oh, really yeah. surprising. That's, that's, a, that's actually
4: an oversight on my part, because Boyhood- forgot I sw- about Boyhood? I actually thought Boyhood was on my list. <laughs> <laughs> boyhood <laughs> is so fucking good. I, there's absolutely no reason I- Forgot on my list. I it. Well, you did, hand. and these things are set in stone. So. I know. Sorry,
1: the card says moops. <laughs> <laughs> I'm
4: going to be um, haunted like, I don't know, the ghosts. They'll come with chains and all. Boyhood.
0: Boyhood I, is right. my number 11. You put right. river of fundament on your <laughs> list. How could you? Into the river of shit.
3: Don't you care about Mason? Oh, um, man. Boyhood, I mean, I, I don't really know where... It, Once I get into this part of the list, I don't really know where things get sorted out. And I don't know why Boyhood is my number two and not number one. And there are moments in Boyhood that stick with me more than anything else I've seen this year. Like, scenes, like you know, the scenes that I think have become kind of famous, like the final shot of the movie and Patricia Arquette's final really devastating scene. But also really little stuff, like when we meet up with Ethan Hawke's character at some point later in life. And he's having a birthday party for one of his kids. And they're, you know, with the in-laws and giving them presents. Like, really basic little things that are very Richard Linklater in that they feel like they're sliced out of the world of a really specific world that's also really universal. And you feel the work and the thought that he put into this over the course of 12 years. And then there's the weight of watching this kid grow up that really can't be underestimated. I think even considering this movie, it feels like we're almost even too close to it to kind of consider what it means to have gotten to see a movie that operates like that and to watch – this project come to fruition in a way that's different even from the up movies um it's a really i mean i mean i was gonna say beautiful but it, it's not beautiful because it's funny and it's weird and, and there's a whole you know divergent subplot in the middle of the movie that i still don't know if i'm crazy about a but that doesn't uh, yeah it turns into I the she movie means insurgent the divergent, which, the divergent yes. series insurgent <laughs> yes it's a it, it's actually an easter egg for insurgent it's kind of a strange departure for him No, I mean, there's a whole segment with, uh, I mean, the first stepfather that I still don't even know if I think that was a good idea. But I think the overall accomplishment of it and the overall sense of a life that you get at the end of it and not even the bigness of it, but how well all the individual scenes are executed and how much you feel like you're part of this world that's a world worth following, no matter how ordinary it is. It's this really titanic thing and kind of like when we talked about before midnight. Was that last year? That was last year, right? Mm Mm-hmm. Like we talked about that so so much and the accomplishment of that and kind of your feelings getting into the end of it, knowing uh, Celine and Jesse as long as you have. And Boyhead does something similar with, you know, maybe less of an artistic structure because it was over a longer period of time. But it does give you that weight and of knowledge and knowing people and feeling the weight of history upon you. Yeah, I'm not. I mean, so many people have talked about Boyhood already. I feel like I haven't yet. But yeah, this movie is really great. It's worth all of the praise that it's been getting, I think.
0: Hmm. Patches. <laughs> the remaining two items on your list are undoubtedly beautiful, according to me. But we've talked about number two before. Is there anything that you want to add about the tale of Princess Kaguya? Yeah, I was Kaguya, Kaguya, for it's right. yeah. Kaguya.
4: I was really surprised that when I first heard about the film. I mean, this was one of my more anticipated films of the year, just because uh, Isao Takahata hadn't made a film in fourteen years. <laughs> And, um, obviously all of Ghibli's films are things that I anticipate, but when it played can, everyone was kind of like, man, it was fine. Um, and then I just had this like unbelievable emotional reaction to every act in this film. You know, when she starts, when she's first discovered by the bamboo cutter and she's just a young child and like seeing parents who weren't able to have kids like discover this child and, and that swelling of, of fulfillment that comes with raising her it was just so joyous and then to see people who love her have to make the sacrifice it like they don't know how to raise her they they want to raise her to a standard a perfection of the world but she is her own person and they can't see her for that and it's so tragic in that way while still managing to be very funny there's one uh, extremely, one of the funniest scenes of the year is in this animated film about these suitors who are trying to woo Kaguya with their prizes and it's just so it's so funny but it's also so sad and that's what this ba- the, the balance in this movie and that's what I really get off when I think of the movie is just this balance of tone um, and and then of course this final act where real tragedy strikes where this girl can't handle it anymore and her whole life, everything she thought She wanted that was taken away from her when her parents put her in this new city. You know, she goes back to this world and all of all of life that has been lost, and the worries that you have, regrets, and uh, what what the future holds, and aging, and dying, and oh, there's everything is going on in this movie, and it's so beautiful, and I think it's really accompanied in a major way by uh, Joe Hisashi, who the longtime composer of 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 Ghibli and Hayao Miyazaki. that it, it, it feels like a musical film to me, too, which is why I uh, – and I think both of my top two films are like this. Uh, yeah, I, I was just swept up. And I, I wish more people had seen it on the big screen because especially this final moment, this parade that they have at the end is something you need to see the biggest way possible. Loved it.
0: Mm. David, you're also mm. revisiting – You're uh, doing a lot
3: of Mr. Turner grunting, by the way, Dave. I really like it.
0: Okay, good. As long as you <clears throat> like it. I mean, I was hoping that... I'm glad that Patches talked about how beautiful the uh, Princess Cayuga was because the intro was hinting that obvious child didn't look as good as the rest of the pics on his list. But now that we're, we're moving on, David, your film has a cameo from a elusive author, and we've talked about it before. Let's talk about inherent advice from the David Ehrlich perspective.
1: Oh man, the David Ehrlich perspective uh, could not care <laughs> less about if and where Thomas Pynchon is in this movie
4: mine um, I didn't care about that
1: yeah i mean i I'm not oh. suggesting that you did. I'm just saying that I just i don't That was the <laughs> context uh, in which Dave introduced it but um i i it was similar to patches and how I felt leaving inherent vice uh it I, I not in, in no small part because I got there at six in the morning, five forty-five in the morning. Oh, yeah. Um, but um, yeah, I mean it, it, it's you know I we reached the part of the night where I wrote at <laughs> no. length about all these movies. So, um, but yeah, it, it, it feels like uh, a very stoned version of the Long Goodbye or something like that. Um, and, and the I Long
3: Goodbye feels very stoned.
1: It feels very stoned yeah. to begin with, right? And uh lightweights. Um, <laughs> um and uh but I, I do think that the melancholy of this movie and, and where it's situated in time uh really on the precipice of of this sort of darker age at the end of the 60s the beginning of the 70s um not in a way entirely dissimilar from the way that uh, god help the girl made me feel which is probably a connection that uh has never made before and never made again <laughs> um hopefully. but uh hopefully right um but, uh, yeah, I, I, I just think that – and I've only seen the once, and this movie really uh, – it, it, it just I don't know what the right word is, but it, it just builds in my mind and takes on these strange new shapes. And, it's fractaling inside. Yeah, it's fractaling inside of me, and uh, I'm very excited to see it again and listening to the soundtrack now that it's available. Uh, well, not the soundtrack rather, which I agree with score, which is less interesting than a score for The Master. Yeah. Um, but – Nevertheless, uh, but really a special shout out to Joanna Newsom, who I think, um, you know, P.T., Paul Thomas Anderson is is the first person to, he's a terrible person to talk to about his own movies. I can tell you this from experience. He uh, really wants to chalk everything up to intuition and just one of those things that happened. And you're like, come on, man. Like, I understand that you are gifted with phenomenal intuition, but that that he so strips the intellectual out of his process. Um, The idea to have... This small character from the novel Sortilege, or whatever her name is, um, become a sort of astral presence in the movies, played by Joanna Newsom, who has the perfect noise, the perfect voice uh, for narrating this character. Real? It's very hard to. She's Mm -hmm. sort of. uh, She's sort of in between those two worlds. Um, Although I would vote more unreal than real, and he Mm -hmm. uh, he would, you know, be mum on the matter. But uh, um, it's such a. Not just a clever way of doing narration and, and letting you into Doc's head a little bit more, but of really just getting a sense of how this entire world operates and feels. I mean, it's so much part of the, the text of of just the world is and part of its sinews rather than just its, its trappings. And uh, it's the first thing you see in the movie, the first thing you hear in the movie, rather. And it sets the stage for a movie that makes all these decisions, makes them well. Um, And I think the more dizzying the plotting gets, the clearer things become as you learn what is important and what isn't and you learn what to pay attention to and what to ignore and uh, it all comes together really well. And in that that hodgepodge of stuff and crazy (laughs) characters and noir where everyone feels like they're participating, everyone feels like they're on loan from their own movie that's happening just off screen – that's exact. That's a um, great
4: description.
3: Oh, that's description. a really great way to because say it. Because it feels yeah.
4: to me like it feels like old W. B. cartoons for some reason, where like you know, like a Tex Avery thing, where Porky Pig and Daffy Duck and Bugs Bunny have just collided into one zany adventure. Um, even though they can all carry their own thing, it's it's a very strange experience. But that is an apt description.
1: Yeah, totally. And I think um, uh, there are there are moments in there. Like there's this sex scene, sex ish scene. A nude scene, at the very least, between Catherine Waterston and uh, and uh, Joaquin Phoenix, which um, is just—it's so telling and it's so rich in the history of these characters, who seem sort of spoofy at first, but have these untold depths about them that I think are, are really strongly felt. Uh, I, I really—I'm more excited to see this movie again than I am to see. Uh, almost anything on the immediate horizon for the first time. Um, and uh, it's a different look at P.T. Anderson, just shepherding this, this pinch on novels of the screen, but uh, he transformed it in the way that it needed to be transformed. And I think that people who are willing to sort of let themselves, give themselves over to it uh, will love it.
3: Brilliant. Brilliant. I'm looking forward to a second viewing. I got I to gotta figure out where I stand on it.
0: Or a first viewing for some of yeah, us unlucky people go. who live in the middle of America. Anyway.
3: Oh, you're a middle American now, months I know, later. I've
0: transitioned, but now I represent all of them. So you better listen to what I have to say. We buy the majority <laughs> of the stuff. Okay. So everything left is a number one. We're going to start with my list because it is uh, comparatively more fun. Uh, number one. <laughs> Guardians of the Galaxy is going to be the movie that I rewatched the most number of times for 2014 and judging from the box office gross, uh, there's a lot of you that feel the same way. It is a Marvel entry that doesn't get bogged down by Marvel's considerable uh, canon even though it's the 10th movie. It's basically Avengers and Star Wars mixed together and James Gunn somehow made that feel not horrible. And really, that's a high bar to clear. And even if it barely clears it, it clears it enough. Guardians of the Galaxy, tons of fun. I am Groot. We are Groots. <laughs> I will rewatch watch GIFs of Guardians <laughs> of the Galaxy again.
3: Primarily of Groot dancing. Yes, that's, probably. I'll
1: just say I mean. it's it's not a great thing when your movie peaks with its title card. But, uh, you know, Oh, it's man. Fun.
3: We <laughs> all just really piled on Guardians of the Galaxy. Yeah. I, I I
4: want to watch again if only to know... Uh, if I was wrong I I admit that maybe I I missed something because so many people like it I want to give it another chance so to be optimistic maybe Guardians of the Galaxy man man of the people yes exactly
0: yeah join me in a rewatch I'm trying to pawn it off on my girlfriend and my girlfriend's family and it's not going well but I'm getting
3: oh I feel like there's nothing easier to like sit people down to watch like it grabs you I mean I th- I think by the time it's the Lee question what up, is this movie is up. about
0: that I keep stumbling because I keep trying different iterations and none of them really stuck you yeah, know
3: I, I
4: problem that. with
0: asking you that question is be like well they're going after an infinity jam well, uh, yes. wait is he Jimmy Stewart well the, <laughs> well, fat, guy, the fat guy from Parks and Rec is <laughs> uh, Indiana Jones in space <laughs> All right, Katie. Your number one film includes <laughs> oh my,
3: my number one another uh, uh, one.
0: faux documentary comedy actor taking a dramatic turn. Take it away, Katie.
3: Wow. Okay. Sure. Uh- Guys, Foxcatcher is a great movie. Holy I shit. I don't understand Are you serious? why it's got Are you serious? no appreciation at all. Number 1
1: yeah. in all of our years of doing this podcast. This is <laughs> the know. most shocking moment. <laughs> this is I surprised awesome. myself. This is wonderful.
3: I surprised myself too. I really went back and forth and tried to figure out like what movie I felt as strongly about as I did about Foxcatcher and I couldn't find it because I think this movie is so smart, is so well acted, it's so in touch with the story that it wants to tell. I think it's obviousness kind of turned a lot of people off. Like, I get that it ends with people chanting USA, USA, and people think that that's a misstep, but to me, it feels so in tune with what this movie is about, which is this heightened world and the way that we put these pressures upon athletes and upon our Olympians and upon our rich people to be these symbols of America and how destructive that is. And the entirety, the the tightness of it and the close you know claustrophobia of it really added to that for me i just i was so captivated by this movie and then the backlash to it really took me by surprise but it really it stuck with me
1: everything about this movie is misconceived literally everything <laughs> oh F I mean, off. you're
4: you
3: are
1: you are incorrect no
3: sorry. i want like i mean i i feel like i have i understand that there's a critical backlash to it but i haven't heard i don't really understand why yet
4: you should listen to david and i babble about yeah, it you guys our, re, you stuff. guys reviewed it so much warring over it i i'm with you i i think it's a, a pretty great film and i was talking to a lot of philadelphians recently who treasure it even more they you know if you have lived it there's something about seeing these events recreated or like sneaking into this moment um that that, that really? may Philadelphians
1: add to it. feel ownership over this story they really, really do,
4: yeah. Because, I mean, DuPont was ever is everywhere, was everywhere. I mean, the, the the stadium or the gymnasium that I used to go see Villanova basketball games as a kid was used to be called the DuPont Pavilion,
1: right? Yeah. Because the family is an institution. Yeah,
4: yeah. but I mean, that w- it was him and and my mom actually was almost on Team Foxcatcher, believe it or not, not as a wrestler, but mom- so Team Foxcatcher has another component to it. It wasn't just wrestling; it was also swimming. Um, so he had a dual thing going on. He, he was. Coaching wrestlers and swimmers, and she was almost part of it. So, Philadelphia is very, very connected to this story, and they, the people that I know who have seen it, are, are quite moved by it. I'm a
1: philatelist. I feel like, I feel like a, that story He's about your mom
0: do, huh? like should have appeared in a magazine and not on this podcast but <laughs> yeah,
4: you're saying wait, it could have sold we, that for 300
0: dollars yeah you kidding? Yeah, there have been more tenuous to, uh, connections to films that have been sold <laughs> in yeah magazines. there might
3: be a, a website run by someone who's a big fan of foxcatcher that might have had you write about that story Jesus Badger. still
1: good time. luck finding a big fan of foxcatcher like what do you think the sequels gonna be about wrestling might be the only website run I just, by a Foxcatcher I, fan. I
3: don't get like this movie is so fascinating to me. It's so there's so many dynamics within it. All the like the triangle of all of these. It has men your chain to- it,
4: Channing. So yeah, I mean, but I I
3: mean, I think he's I think he's good in it. I think Steve Carell and Mark Ruffalo are both better. I think I mean, he's a <sighs> I just think
1: he's a, a worthy performance in this movie. I just Ooh. yeah, I feel
3: like that's all about people looking at the nose and not no, anything it's just about the he's so performance.
1: affected. I I, I don't but find
3: But the it... guy is affected. Like he's creating himself. He's making himself into this heroic guy, which I is understand. obvious that that is not the artifice is part of who the character is.
1: I, I understand. It's part of his delusion and whatnot. I just it doesn't – it plays – it still plays unreal to me. I think that it, the obviousness is less to do with the proto-America – like the pro-America themes that it does, um, just the transparency of the characters. And I think he is sort of exhibit A there. I think Mark Ruffalo, who gives a good performance, is, is also epitomizes – the problem with the performances in this movie, save for Channing Tatum, who I think comes away scot-free and does a great job, in that they're all just a little bit too mannered. I think his gorilla walk with his arms down roughly. I love that. Like, yeah, me like, too. I get it. You want everyone in the back of the house to be like, okay, he's a wrestler. It's, in, it's shaped how he that's moves. That's such bullshit. Every, that's how it's, you evolve so, into
4: that by being a wrestler.
1: I mean, I just it it just doesn't like I'm not There's saying it's not true it. it play it just not play realistically for oh. all for me. But also, I just found this movie oppressively uh, transparent and and just like so suffocating. Anything real because it was so much like, about Bennett Miller trying to chase this. Uh, this tone, this this vibe, this energy, and I think uh, this was just the wrong way to go about the story. I, I and I was more TV. I no, was, was more bored yeah. during Foxcatcher than I was in any other movie this year. I mean, we talked about that the
3: Transformers. The, I mean, that can't be. True. Yes,
1: I mean, I do. I think Foxcatcher is a better movie than Transformers. Absolutely. No, I wasn't. But, I didn't
3: mean that. But God, Transformers was boring.
1: Um, but uh, I was very bored by Foxcatcher, and uh, when it's on HBO, um, and I have the chance to just jump in, you're and jump on out, Ambien uh I'll give it another no, look no jumping
3: but... in and jumping out I I don't I mean not that, no, this, not that as, I don't on, do that with movies but I don't think that's going to give you anything in terms of re-evaluating
1: it. Oh, there's yeah, no better gonna, way to get to get a sense. I don't know. I
3: feel like I feel like the entire point of that movie is to have that oppressive vibe and to have the fog but and see, the sense of claustrophobia. But see I think the, the
1: vibe was so was so off of how the story should have been approached that I wonder if I might see something when when it's lifted from time to time, then I might see the story in a slightly different way. All
3: right. We'll uh, anyway. again. let's have a let's have a refight over this. This was,
1: this was truly shocking. Your both your top two were both shocking for me. All the, but I am I am very curious to Wait, see. Wait, boyhood was shocking. No, sorry. Uh, I yeah. guess I wild. wild. I uh, I'm very. I'm gonna redouble my efforts to see wild uh, because I. Believe in Katie and her judgment. Foxcatcher notwithstanding, <laughs> I don't know. You
3: Patches might come on the same well, side. At the-, uh, at
1: the very, at the very least, I think it. it- adds a respectability to the movie that I want to suss out for myself. So. I think it
3: is, a, it is a very respectable movie, as is Foxcatcher. And I think, uh, before I get off the soapbox, that a lot of the movies that I wound up loving were female-centric movies because I got very sick of dude movies from this year, i.e. Whiplash and Birdman primarily. And then uh, Foxcatcher was still the one that stuck with me, which I think is says something to its power And that I kind of actively tried not to make it that because I was so worn out on macho men and their traumas. But Foxcatcher was the one that stuck around the most.
0: Mm-hmm. Poor Birdman, because there's only one movie left to talk about in this podcast, and it's the movie that I honestly would put on my number one if I had to make a top 10. Granted, I haven't seen a lot of these other excellent movies that we have (laughs) talked about that you could find at the Top 10 2014 link at fightinginthewarroom.com, where you could also find all of us back episodes. You could tell we're going to close this out, because I really want you to hear our full throated support of the Grand Budapest Hotel.
4: <laughs> I just want to say that boyhood does live in my top 10, but it's like next to it. Like in, in no <laughs> like place. Parallel- and it's just hovering around. Is it
3: in the interstellar bookshelf
4: somewhere? Yes. It's Looking at all fabric. Yeah. Yes.
3: This is a all beautiful right. thing.
1: This is a beautiful yeah. thing. Power rings together. And uh, Birdman doesn't show up on any of Bird
0: our Man lists. Birdman got snubbed by fighting in the war room. As did I,
3: Whiplash.
0: I'll say that uh, Michael Gosh. Keaton, though, he is the only Batman. So feel feel okay about yourself.
1: <laughs>
4: um, why did we love the Grand Budapest Hotel?
1: What, what, I, you know, I also I, love the Grand really, Budapest Hotel,
3: by the way. I tried to make room for it. I
1: would really it. like for you to run with this because I'm going to do that obnoxious thing of saying. I think of all the reviews that I wrote this year, the one that I was happiest with, saying what I wanted to say about the movie and that even upon revisiting as stand standby was uh, the one that I wrote for the Badass Digest for the Grand Budapest Hotel. And so if you're interested in my thoughts I like about that, that... you
4: acknowledge that these things are uh, obnoxious. And, yet, and then you do not it anyway. Well, you
1: know, here we are. It's 12.30. Very 12.38 in the morning. We've been talking for two hours. <laughs> if you think that I'm going to do a better job articulating what I loved about this movie than I did when I had yeah. hours on end in writing, uh, you, you are sadly you mistaken. But I will happily chime in, but I would like You're you to a good set performer. the performer.
4: Uh, yeah, so the Grand Budapest Hotel, um, I, as I was describing about uh, Princess Kaguya, this movie feels like a musical to me without actual song and dance. And uh, it's a large part in Wes Anderson. Having this unified vision, having this farce, having this melancholy tone running through, through it, uh, considering war, considering these people, uh, considering what they love, running this hotel, and um, and then having this musical accompaniment by despla Displa, uh, you know, uh, David. Let me pimp one of your stories. You just ranked the Desplat scores uh, okay. on, on time That's out. A great article. And, uh, this one did not place as high as I would have liked um, because I think it is... But it placed. Yes, it did place. Um, Mm -hmm. This movie is all about personality, as many of Wes Anderson's films are, but compared to something, you know, I had such a bad taste left in my mouth after Darjeeling Limited. And uh, Moonrise Kingdom for me was also... I mean, I liked it a lot. Uh, I, I didn't fall for it the way other people did. So I don't know what I was thinking going into Grand Budapest Hotel that I'd probably like, not love it. And... Wow, what a unified vision. Like having the layers of the, the storytelling is a huge aspect that I love about this movie. That um, how time warps and changes and fictionalizes for people over the years. And then going all the way back to uh, Ray Fiennes as, as um, M. Gustav. Who is just such an exhilarating character? So suave, so many uh, sh- layers to that character, and everyone he meets is a different person, or or seeing a different side of him. And the score accompanies that. That's why this is a song and dance for me. Uh, and and the, all the different scenarios. It's a spy movie. There's there's a Bond moment. Uh, there It's just extraordinary how it all kind of fits into place. It's like a puzzle. And actually looking at the Grand Budapest Hotel, uh, this that wide shot that he cuts to a few times, it. looks Looks like a puzzle. It looks like a distant memory, something we only know in illustration. Um, this is everything I love about the movies: it's music, it's it's animation. I mean, I think this is very close to Mister F- uh, Fantastic, Mister Fox. Um, yeah, he and was somehow finding live action or animation in live action. It's it's astonishing.
1: His career is fascinating to me. I was never really fully on board with uh, his earlier. Films like uh, the Royal Tenenbaums and Wes and and, uh, and the Wes Anderson and uh, the, the Royal Tenenbaums, uh, Rushmore, and the Royal Tenenbaums, and Bottle Rocket. I mean, these are things that are religion to a lot of people of our generation, um, and for me, it always left me sort of cold. But I think the further, and I wrote about this in the article I alluded to, but the for, the further that he, um, the more control he takes over his worlds, I think the more interesting he becomes. I think that uh, the the sandbox that he creates for himself is something that is not it it is oppressive but it's a these worlds are everything to him and i think um being able to build them from scratch from the ground up is integral to a filmmaker that he's become and has always hinted at being and i think that shift to stop motion for fantastic mr fox unlocks so many possibilities for how he approaches these things to find the tone that has in one way or another increasingly dark forms uh underscored Fantastic Mr. Fox, Moonrise Kingdom, and now the Grand Budapest Hotel, um, each of which somehow feels... I mean, Moonrise Kingdom feels a little bit more loose just because uh, of its... I,
0: I, I've always said when I've described these people is that he realized that he could make absolutely everything and his only mistake was that his next story he wanted to tol- tell involved children acting very specifically and so it might have been a bit well, more
1: difficult right? But I, I mean I love Moonrise Kingdom. I think that I would put it above any of those movies he made before, um, before Fantastic Mr. Fox. I think all three of these movies are just in a league of their own well above uh, Rushmore and the Grand Budapest and the fucking the Royal Tenenbaums. Um, I mean,
0: I, but I really want to – this is a hammered home that I agree with you completely about Control. It's that Wes Anderson uh, experimenting, uh, I would say, since the Royal Tenenbaums, just because of how that movie tries to nest itself as like a proto – Moonrise Kingdom or uh, Grand Budapest Hotel, but his attempts to control everything from the composition to the actual physical things being used as props, uh, it's been interesting to see him wrestle with that, and I feel like he did Fantastic Mr. Fox and had complete animation control literally over every frame. He tried to give some of that up for Moonrise Kingdom, which wasn't unsuccessful, but seeing him exercise full control over a story like he does in the Grand Budapest Hotel is really what makes it I think elevate over some of his other movies for me. Mm. Uh
1: yeah, so I I think um I just I just think that this is uh you know the, the most Wes Anderson movie but I think uh, if he's the rare filmmaker where that is translates to it also being his best. Um I think uh, it's, it's neck and neck with uh, fantastic Mr. Fox for me, but I, someone was saying on Twitter earlier today, the, uh, this is something that stuck with me from my first viewing of the film, uh, how quickly the sort of the whiplash, um, you go from this sort of what seems to be an upbeat ending to just finding yourself inconsolable in the blink of an eye towards the end of the movie. <laughs> and I think that that's so at the heart of what this movie accomplishes and, and what it does and how, um, it balances the the sweet with the sour towards the end. like the end of the movie. I think uh, it's it's perspective on this lost time and and its value and what's been sacrificed in the modern world. Um, it's unabashed nostalgia, but tainted with a really bitter, you know, aftertaste. Is uh, it just works so well? And I, you know, it, I would not have believed in January when I saw this movie that. Uh, It was already my that I'd already seen my favorite film of the year, but here we are. Although I will say, and I mean this is no backhand compliment to uh, or no dismissal rather of of the Grand Budapest Hotel, which I think is is just the cat's meow. But I think uh, this year had a a number of really really good movies, and people are bending over backwards to say it's a good movie year. But I think it had painfully few great movies, and I I think that. the Grand Budapest Hotel is a is a great movie, uh, but you know I wonder if like Inside Wind Davis and The Wind Rises, I think both those films, um, or and Before Midnight, all the all those films would, would be above anything that I liked from this year. Of course, this is personal. <laughs> Don't crunch numbers.
3: I even wish there was yeah. a Wolf of Wall Street this year, like a movie that wasn't even obviously great but was so messy and kind of gave you so much to think about. I, I felt like there wasn't enough I, I, this think,
1: year. I think Wolf of Wall Street uh, ten years from now will be seen in the same – will be said in the same breath as Raging Bull and uh, and Taxi Driver and let's Good just, Let's
3: just put Wolf of Wall Street on our top 10 again. I'll probably again. still sure. be
1: talking
0: about Grand Budapest
4: Hotel. I
1: almost. hope so.
3: Yeah, yeah. I, I will still be it's, beating the drum for Foxcatcher. Yeah, whatever. I'll have like and,
1: five more group movies to remind yeah, me. No of my one, favorite movie. no one will remember Foxcatcher. Oh, we <laughs> will,
3: st- we will still be talking about Boyhood, whether or not you guys think it's a great movie. I think we it was, will. Yeah, I mean that's a landmark for various Very movies. true. Right. And All right. four. Even
1: even the people who hate Boyhood, and I'm by no means among them, it was my number eleven. Uh, we'll still be talking about Boyhood.
0: <laughs> so. Yeah great great year for cinema definitely our most number of movies just statistically that we've ever recommended in the top tens episode i'm going to suggest for brevity that we all just go with twitter handles and our top 10 i can help you with the top 10 if you don't have the list in front of you but katie where can people find you on twitter
3: Okay, I'm Katie Rich, K-A-T-E-Y-R-A-C-H. My top ten, hang on one second, I clicked away from it to see what everyone else said was the worst movie of the year. I said it was Transcendence for the record. Uh, Under the Skin, We Are the Best, Citizen Four, The Babadook, Obvious Child, Two Days, One Night, Selma, Wild, Boyhood, and Foxcatcher.
0: Katie will be back in 2015, as will our next person... Matt Patches, tell us your top ten of the year and where people could find you on Twitter.
4: Yeah, it's uh, my number ten, Still Alice. Number nine, Snowpiercer. Number eight, Citizen Four. Number seven, Ida. Number six, Locke. Number five, The River of Fundament. Number four, Inherent Vice. Number three, Obvious Child. Number two, The Tale of Princess Kaguya. And number one, The Grand Budapest Hotel. And I'm on Twitter, at Mr. Patches. And we might be back before 2015, depending if we can get our review, kick our reviews in the ass.
0: We'll see. I don't want to make any promises that yeah, don't involve me editing the episode. But Patches, thank you so much. We will see you in 2015. Uh, David Ehrlich, give us your top ten if you remember it. Or if not, just your Twitter 100 and I can fill it in for you.
1: No, uh, I, I should have, more than anyone, should have my top ten memorized, <laughs> given all the time I spent making it uh my let's see it was the tale of princess kaguya um force majeure god help the girl the double only lovers left alive gone girl nymphomaniac under the skin inherent vice and the grand budapest hotel and my twitter handle is david ehrlich that's david e-h-r-l-i-c-h
0: I'm Dave Gonzalez, by my first name, D-A-7-E. That is my Twitter handle. I will be watching Snowpiercer, The Lego Movie, Godzilla, The Grand Budapest Hotel, and Guardians of the Galaxy many times in 2015. And you could find all of our episodes at FightingInTheWarRoom.com. Guys, this was our first complete year of our new podcast. We will see Woo-hoo! you We will see you next year, barring someone dying a horrible Babadook death, uh, for <laughs> our 6th <sixth laughs> annual 10th Top 10 Countdown.